With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're talking with Barack Obama, author of Dreams from My Father's Story of Race and Inheritance, published by Times Books. Welcome, Barack. Thank you very much. And I did say African-American and the fact that your father, who also was Barack Obama, uh, was from Kenya. That's right. He was uh, part of that first wave of young Africans who, uh, right after independence in the early 60s, came to the West in search of uh, education, hoping to master Western technology and bring it back to develop a modern Africa. And meet your mother at the University of Hawaii. Met my mother there. She was coming from uh, the opposite direction. Uh, An uh, American Caucasian. She was a, she, she was a, a, a white American uh, coming from a small uh, a, a series of small towns in, in Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, I, my, I, I, I like to joke that uh, my grandparents on my mother's side uh, uh, are stepping out of an American Gothic painting uh, because they're so prototypical average Midwestern uh, Americans. But they were also, especially Gramps, uh -huh. your grandfather, a liberal. Uh, and so was Tutu. Right. Uh, they were exceptional people. In many ways, both your grandparents and your mother and father were part of that, the 60s and the dream. Yeah, I, I really, and, and that's part of where I get the title from, Dreams from My Father. I think they were all part of a hopeful time. And I, and I think uh, when I say that my grandparents were prototypical, I think what they represented was the best uh, in sort of average American uh, life, sort of uh, decent people. Uh, they were liberal, but not in any ideological way. They just wanted to do the right thing. Uh, and in the early 60s, that mood of hopefulness, uh, an, an integrationist spirit, an, a, a notion that we could create a more just and equal nation where race issues would not matter and, and, and there was going to be harmony, I think uh, my entire family got swept up into that. Uh, unfortunately, the dreams began to uh, fray. Uh, yeah. both within my own family and, and within the country as a whole. When you are growing up in Hawaii, I was surprised that color would play such a bigoted part, especially at school. Right. Uh, Hawaii, to me, has always been what the epitome of a melting pot, right. and I, that was a really disappointing. Right. Well, you know, the, the I should say I think Hawaii is a wonderful place, and I think it it probably is as successful as any place in accommodating mm -hmm. uh, a, a multicultural uh, environment and, and, and groups and races working together. Uh, but what happened when I was there uh, as a young person, as a child, uh, is that the African-American community there was very small. Uh, it was uh, uh, much smaller than it is now, for example. Yeah. And as a consequence, a lot of the, the, uh, the race uh, confrontations that ended up affecting me had more to do with uh, just pure ignorance uh, on the part of many of the people that I oh, met. Oh, but I said to you, there was a moment that I found devastating reading that, uh -huh. and that was the day your grandmother had evidently been hustled on the street right. and comes home and tells you, and you hear her talking with your grandfather, right. 
And what he finally says, she didn't want to say it was a big black man. Right. And it was as if suddenly your balloon fizzled. Well, I, I think that's right. I, uh, that was a, a, a powerful moment for me uh, because I think it represented uh, the notion that even within families that love each other, uh, and, and my grandparents, my grandmother uh, was, was extraordinarily loving, um, even within families of, uh, with the best intentions, uh, race can intrude in ugly ways. Uh, and that uh, uh, we can't escape sort of the, 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 the historical legacy uh, that this country has created, but also ended up affecting my father uh, back in Kenya. Uh, you know, we have this uh, uh, difficulty in understanding the other. Uh, we're, we live as strangers, black and white. Uh, and although I think within my family, and hopefully uh, through the journey that I record in the book, uh, a greater degree of understanding has arrived at, uh, I still think it's a, it's a difficult struggle. It had to be doubly difficult for you because you were moving between two families. Well, you know, the uh, uh, I didn't. My father had returned to Kenya mm -hmm. uh, uh, after uh, he and my mother separated. Uh, this is when I was only two years old, uh, and essentially, my father uh, became sort of a mythic figure to the me, icon. An, an yeah. icon, an uh, icon. And my mother, who was just a wonderful, generous woman, uh, I tease her sometimes that uh, she was a proponent of uh, Afrocentric education before it became fashionable, because she really. Uh, emphasized and built up a strong self-image uh, for me of what it meant to be an African uh, and an African-American, that I should be proud of that heritage and, and, and that culture. But nevertheless, it was extraordinarily difficult uh, to grow up in uh, both Hawaii and then later in Indonesia, yeah. uh, uh, where I was often the only uh, uh, person uh, of, of African extraction uh, there, and I did not have male role models, much in the same way that many young inner-city kids uh, uh, these days don't have uh, role models that they can look up to. In some ways, the book is not unlike sort of a Jason the Golden Fleece, a Greek tragedy, in the sense that your father comes back once when you're 10. Right. And it isn't until years later that you learn the real story of what happened to him back in Kenya. Right. Where he goes back, works for an oil company, he's king of the hill, right. marries again, and then because he starts to speak up, and because of the changing political scheme, right. he's from the wrong tribe. Right. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, he ends up uh, being blacklisted from the government, uh, and uh, in fact dies a very bitter and lonely man. Uh, and uh, e there is a tragic element to that. And, and part of what uh, I had to come to terms with in writing the book uh, and in discovering that entire side of mm -hmm. my life and my family uh, was, to, was to, to really recognize that uh, uh, he had been shaped by uh, many of the forces that I was struggling with as a youth, uh, that uh, he, uh, as an African, uh, although was not genetically mixed, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, culturally was caught in this uh, cross-pollinization, this hybridization, this, this movement from uh, traditional African society into suddenly being catapulted into the modern age. And, and uh, I think in the end, he was not ever quite able to completely bridge that, that, that schism between modern life and traditional life uh, that probably uh, is a schism that 
for him at least, was just as powerful as any schism uh, between black and white. Yeah, because he really was going from, what, almost the 1800s into uh, an advanced 20th century when he goes to Harvard That's for an exactly economics right. degree. Right. I mean, the, the leap that my father made uh, is, is just extraordinary. Uh, you know, and, and if you look just two generations back, uh, the leap that my grandfather made. Uh, you know, my grandfather, I learn uh, mm -hmm. towards the end of the book, uh, uh, had, was the first person in his village to encounter uh, white people. Uh, and we forget sometimes in uh, American culture because uh, the black-white issue has been so long because slavery started yeah. so long ago and the slaving trade began on the West Coast uh, uh, very early. Uh, in many parts of East Africa, uh, the, there was very minimal contact between white and black until very late, so that my grandfather, who was born in 1895, uh, is, you know, uh, uh, is, is... It's like he went to the moon. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, suddenly he now has to, uh, uh, he comes, I tell a story about him uh, coming back from uh, in his encounters with white people and wearing Western clothes for the first time. Uh, and uh, his father saying, uh, uh, you know, to, to his brothers, "Don't uh, touch this uh, this guy. Don't talk to him. He's unclean." Uh, and 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 those kinds of conflicts, where by the end of his life, he's now suddenly uh, looking and riding in airplanes and and uh, uh, riding in motor cars and right. The, the entire transformation that took place there, I think, was was powerful and difficult, and I think ended up shaping both my father's life and, as a consequence, my own. Talk about change, because it will sort of jump over a little bit. You go to Occidental, you go to school, uh, college in New York. Right. But you end up in Chicago through the influence of a man named Marty. Uh, well, I, I call him Marty. That's, okay. a, that's a pseudonym. All right. right. Who brings you back to Chicago to teach you how to be a community leader. A community organizer. And, right. uh, well, I guess a leader organizer right. in that world. And how you got met, M-E-T, uh -huh. as the first sort of object for your group to say, wait a minute, here's where we attacked right. first. Right. Well, you know, the uh, uh, I ended up, uh, this was in the early 80s, I became a community organizer, and I think I was running counter to a lot of my generation who, uh, this was in the midst of the Reagan era, uh, and most of my contemporaries and classmates were going in the opposite direction to Wall Street and, and uh thinking about uh, making money. And uh, I think the reason that I became a community organizer uh, was in part to try to re-establish uh, re or, or connect with the, the dreams and the idealism that had brought my parents together. Uh, you know, uh, I, in my mind, uh, my identity was wrapped up with sort of images of freedom riders uh, in, in the South and, and uh, uh, kids marching for their freedom. And uh, I wanted to be a part of that because my sense was that by being a community organizer, you could bring together uh, the many disparate strands in, in, in America. Context of white supremacy. Justice, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast. Uh, today's date, Friday, November 2nd. 2012 so I have been told uh, before we get started with the broadcast uh, we will do our prayer at the beginning 
uh, just take a few moments uh, to recognize. I know a lot of people, a lot of non-white people uh, on the eastern seaboard, uh, the area of the world known as the United States. Uh, a lot of non-white people uh, have had a tough go of it with uh, the aftermath, the cleanup uh, from Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I know the context of white supremacy, one of the reasons that we uh, are on right now, uh, a little after 7 p.m. Eastern, is because uh, really for the whole time that we've been on the air, we've had a lot of non-white people uh, who listen in from that part of the world. So I try to adjust the times of the program so that it's not too late, so that people on the East Coast uh, can listen live if they so choose. Uh, so just for the folks who listen in and just for all the non-white people, I know it's tons of them who have had a tough time uh, to recognize um, what they're going through, uh, wishing them the best, uh, hope that they are staying dry and safe as possible, uh, have access to everything that you need and are moving forward, getting things uh, back, improving, uh, getting things back to where they were before the storm, if not better. Uh, and just all the other non-white people, uh, the storm that's going on, but just all of the horrific things that we as victims of racism are subject to on a regular basis. I know uh, Bruce Fine and some of our other listeners were saying it was a rough week on the plantation. I will definitely co-sign there. Uh, so quick prayer and then we will proceed. Creator, uh, we want you to aid in any way possible all of the non-white people victims of racism uh, who have encountered any difficulties problems as a result of Hurricane Sandy maximum effort to aid any and all non-white people who are having any difficulties from that storm, uh, hoping that they're able to get their houses uh, in order quickly. Hopefully the non-white people suffered minimal damage, no loss of life or major property. All of the non-white people, folks that listen to the program, whether they uh, are confused, not confused, whatever, if it is a non-white person, uh, we just ask uh, any anything that you can do uh, that would aid them to help solve some of their problems, at least give them uh, a little bit, uh, ease some of the pain and suffering uh, that we are experiencing as a result of being terrorized by white people. Uh, give us the courage, the will, the resolve and the understanding of why we should do everything that we possibly can to replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. And we always ask, help us to remember we have an enemy and help us to adjust our thought, speech, and action to be logical in how we respond to our enemies, white people racist man, racist woman, racist child. Ashe. All right. Number to dial if you want to dial in, participate. This is supposed to be a study session. 
7676 and the code is 564943pound if you want to listen in over the phone if you want to participate we definitely want a lively active discussion hopefully you'll take notes as we listen to uh, the second segment from Dreams from My Father published in 1995 forgive my error so uh, disgraceful uh, giving out the incorrect information last week and again thank you to the uh, listeners for pointing that out because that's very important uh, published in 1995 Dreams from My Father uh, really quick before uh, we get to the book of course we have the compensatory call in uh, tomorrow Saturday evening 9pm Eastern 6pm Pacific doing the election special Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Dial in, share, share. Also, we're on Stitcher.com now, Stitcher.com. You can access the cows with your mobile devices, smartphones, all that good stuff. Simple app, download it, and you'll be able to find the cows on Stitcher. It has the current episodes, and uh, it's got quite a few of the archives as well. I'm adding more uh, with each passing day. I'm adding a few more. So Stitcher.com, you can just search racism and we'll pop up first page real easy. You can lock it in your phone. Uh, Quickly before uh, we get to the audio segment, uh, number one, uh, one of our listeners, gorgeous non-white female. uh, She calls in uh, pretty regularly on Skype to participate Uh, She had posited that she thinks we might be entering uh, 21st century post-Reconstruction era, right? With President Obama and white people, uh, if you know anything about what happened in the so-called South after the Civil War and white people, the Klan, blatant, explicit terrorism. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing, she talked about how the system of white supremacy, it recycles similar concept. Uh, on CNN today, they had an article it's titled Parallels to Country's Racist Past Haunt Age of Obama. And one of the sentences in this article, they write that uh, certain historians say President Obama isn't that they don't say president. They just say Obama. Uh, historians say that Obama isn't post racial, but a post reconstructionist. And they go on in the report to explain further. You can check it out. I put it on my blog. The title of the post, again, is Parallels to Country's Racist Past Haunt Age of Obama. Before we get to the segment, uh, one of our previous guests, non-white female, uh, she was on the program in September of 2011. Uh, Ms. Zena, uh, founder with uh, the Deactivate the White Chip Project deactivate the white chip excellent website great work that they're doing um she was on facebook and she saw i was posting about the program we're doing today and i posted the audio clip that you heard at the beginning which is a 1995 interview with he wasn't even senator at the time so just it was barack obama at the time doing this interview with this racist suspect connie martinson and I posted the full interview and she was like, wow, what I, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this. And I told her I would share on the program. So I'm going to do it quick so we can get to the audio. Uh, you only heard a, a portion uh, of that clip. It, it, it's about a 30 minute interview that she does with him about this book. 
and uh, you, my cup runneth over. President Obama actually did a lot of interviews talking about this book. Uh, some of them as early as 1995. Uh, he, our guy, Charlie Rose, uh, folks who tuned in for the uh, study sessions that we did on Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, uh, he did several interviews with her and I played some of those during those broadcasts. Charlie Rose also spoke with uh, President Obama Again, he wasn't even senator when he spoke with Charlie Rose uh, about dreams from my father. So we'll hear some of those clips as we proceed. We'll have we have quite a few of these segments uh, on this book left to go. So the cup runneth over. But the segment that we started off with, I'm just going to give a, a few quickies, uh, things that stood out to me, and then we'll get to the audio. Uh, number one, um, I, I'm having to self-censor here, but portion where. Martinson, this white woman, says that she was so disappointed to hear that there was a race issue with him growing up in Hawaii. I was just yelling, you lying. (laughs) You're white. You know, you know, we are on a planet dominated by racism, white supremacy. Uh, Hawaii hasn't even been a state that long. I mean, if you want to talk about the history of white supremacy just study how Hawaii got to be a state in the first place and white people tend to know that oh that was just disgraceful when white people just tell blatant lies like that I mean it's next um, when the white woman when she said she found it devastating she's so dramatic uh, she found it devastating uh, the moment where uh, Tut, President Obama's white grandmother uh, felt that this black guy was asking her for some, I think we might get to that section this week, uh, asked her for some money and she went home and said she was scared and uh, her white husband didn't buy it. He said, she's being racist and whatever. No, I'm not taking you. I'm not giving you a ride. You're just being a racist. Uh, that she found this moment devastating. She did not explain what was devastating about this moment. She didn't explain what she thought was devastating about this moment, right? She didn't she didn't explain. Maybe she thought it was devastating that the the white woman wasn't able to get sympathy from her white husband uh, to agree with her that this surly black guy, this surly nigger shouldn't have accosted her on the street asking for money. Maybe that's what she thought was devastating. She didn't explain. Uh, and oh, words. We will see. I have the hard copy book and we'll see if they cover this section in the audio book. I would be stunned if they don't include that in the audio book. We'll see what word grandma uses to what word she uses. I don't think she said hustled real important. Just let's keep that in mind as we proceed. Uh, President Obama in this the segment that we heard, he said that he felt the problem was that we live as strangers. We don't really know one another. That is not true. You can judge for yourself whether you think. He was willfully misleading us or willfully saying something that he know he know or knew was not true uh, or if he's just a confused victim. I have concluded white people, they know a lot about black people. White people are not ignorant about black people. They are subjects at all. That is an extraordinary misconception that should not be uh, perpetrated in any way get that out of your head white people are not confused about their subjects us non-white people 
the next thing stood out, uh, the black pathology. Dr. Cambon talked about that before. White people like a good precious story. White people like a good color purple toy. Tell us about how, how your brothers and cousins raped you and sold you into prostitution and, <laughs> and had you selling crack at age three. I mean, they love to hear stories of black pathology. They don't have to be true. If it's true, that's even better. But I mean, if you can make it up and be convincing, whatever, they just love that. And I think just, I mean, it's been there, obvious, but even in that interview, I think white people, they really enjoy the aspect of President Obama's narrative. There's an absent father. They love that. I was saying last week, that's one of their favorite jokes. What is the most confusing day in the ghetto? Father's Day. They like that. Who oh, was dad? Was Frank uh, Marshall Davis? And oh, who was his real father? Next point. Just terms blacklisted it's in the uh, word guide. Uh, and oh, I thought it was incredible the metaphors when they talk about President Obama's black father that it was like moving from the 1800s to the 20th century. Wow. What? <laughs> Extraordinary metaphor. Uh, just <laughs> wow. Just the way that, that white people think about non-white people and they train their victims to think the same way that black people are so backward and primitive it's that same logic you hear when you hear some white people and even some non-white people saying hey slavery was great it fast forwarded us that was like you know the uh, the middle passage in the slave ships that was like a time machine that fast forwarded us uh, probably you know 2000 years we would have still been you know without toilet paper living in huts uh, being cannibals on the continent that's you know, that logic. It come. I mean, to me, it's just it's blatant. They might as well have said that. And again, last week, there was a reference to Joseph Conrad, the heart of darkness. President Obama, he said his white grandfather that informed his knowledge of non-white areas of the world. So, I mean, it's, to me, it's just very blatant. I didn't even, words. She referenced the white woman. She referenced his grandfather's tribe, that that was the problem. He was from the wrong tribe. Just that is a very racist coded word in my opinion those are just some of the quick things that stood out uh, in that clip and again that that's not even really half the whole interview is about 30 minutes so maybe we'll hear some more as we proceed uh, I did post that whole interview on uh, my Facebook page uh, the interviewer racist suspect Connie Martinson uh, from 1995. Uh, Reverend Wright pops up in that segment. Affirmative action. Oh my. Okay, here we go. Uh, audiobook, first segment. Uh, we are pretty much at the beginning of disc two. Uh, Kickback. We will listen for about 30 minutes, a little more than 30 minutes. As soon as it's done, we'll go to the phone lines, see if anyone has hands, questions. Uh, hopefully you can take some notes, uh, write some things down and be ready to participate. I'll give out the number again once the segment concludes. Uh, President Barack Obama reading his autobiography, Dreams from My Father, 1995. Still, something had happened between her and Lolo in the year that they had been apart. In Hawaii, he had been so full of life, so eager with his plans. At night, when they were alone, he would tell her about growing up as a boy during the war, 
watching his father and eldest brother leave to join the Revolutionary Army, hearing the news that both had been killed and everything lost, the Dutch armies setting their house aflame, their flight into the countryside, his mother selling her gold jewelry a piece at a time in exchange for food. Things would be changing now that the Dutch had been driven out, Lowell had told her. He would return and teach at the university, be part of that change. He didn't talk that way anymore. In fact, it seemed as though he barely spoke to her at all, only out of necessity or when spoken to, and even then only of the task at hand, repairing a leak or planning a trip to visit some distant cousin. It was as if he had pulled into some dark hidden place, out of reach, taking with him the brightest part of himself. On some nights she would hear him up after everyone else had gone to bed, wandering through the house with a bottle of imported whiskey, nursing his secrets. Other nights he would tuck a pistol under his pillow before falling off to sleep. Whenever she asked him what was wrong, he would gently rebuff her, saying he was just tired. It was as if he had come to mistrust words somehow. Words and the sentiments words carried. She suspected these problems had something to do with Lolo's job. When she arrived, he was working for the Army as a geologist, serving roads and tunnels. It was mind-numbing work that didn't pay very much. The refrigerator alone cost two months' salary. And now, with a wife and child to provide for, no wonder he was depressed. She hadn't traveled all this way to be a burden, she decided. She would carry her own weight. She found herself a job right away, teaching English to Indonesian businessmen at the American Embassy, part of the U.S. foreign aid package to developing countries. The money helped, but didn't relieve her loneliness. The Indonesian businessmen weren't much interested in the niceties of the English language, and several made passes at her. The Americans were mostly older men, careerists in the State Department, the occasional economists or journalists who would mysteriously disappear for months at a time, their affiliation or function in the embassy never quite clear. Some of them were caricatures of the ugly American, prone to making jokes about Indonesians until they found out that she was married to one and then they would try to play it off. Oh, don't take Jim too seriously. The heat's gotten to him. How's your son, by the way? Fine, fine, boy. These men knew the country, though, or parts of it anyway, the closets where the skeletons were buried. Over lunch or casual conversation, they would share with her things she couldn't learn in the published news reports. They explained how Sukarno had frayed badly on the nerves of a U.S. government already obsessed with the march of communism through Indochina, what with his nationalist rhetoric and his politics of non-alignment, he was as bad as Lumumba or Nasser, only worse, given Indonesia's strategic importance. Word was that the CIA had played a part in the coup, although nobody knew for sure. More certain was the fact that after the coup, the military had swept the countryside for supposed communist sympathizers. The death toll was anybody's guess. A few hundred thousand, maybe, half a million. Even the smart guys at the agency had lost count. Innuendo, half-whispered asides, that's how my mother found out that we had arrived in Jakarta less than a year after one of the more brutal and swift campaigns of suppression in modern times. The idea frightened her, the notion that history could be swallowed up so completely, the same way the rich and loamy earth could soak up the rivers of blood that had once coursed through the streets, the way people could continue about their business beneath giant posters of the new president as if nothing had happened a nation busy developing itself. As her circle of Indonesian friends widened, a few of them would be willing to tell her other stories about the corruption that pervaded government agencies, the shakedowns by police and the military, entire industries carved out for the president's family and entourage. And with each new story, 
My mother would go to Lolo in private and ask him, Is it true? He would never say. The more she asked, the more steadfast he became in his good-natured silence. Why are you worrying about such talk? he would ask her. Why don't you buy a new dress for the party? She had finally complained to one of Lolo's cousins, a pediatrician who had helped look after Lolo during the war. You don't understand, the cousin had told her gently. Understand what? my mother asked. The circumstances of Lolo's return, the cousin said. He hadn't planned on coming back from Hawaii so early, you know. During the purge, all students studying abroad had been summoned without explanations. Their passports revoked. When Lolo stepped off the plane, he had no idea what might happen to him next. We couldn't see him. The army officials took him away and questioned him. They told him that he had just been conscripted and would be going to the jungles of New Guinea for a year. And he was one of the lucky ones. Students studying in the Eastern Bloc countries did much worse. Many of them are still in jail or vanished. So you see, you shouldn't be too hard on Lolo, the cousin said. Such times are best forgotten. My mother had left the cousin's house in a daze. Outside, the sun was high, the air full of dust. But instead of taking a taxi home, she began to walk without direction. She found herself in a wealthy neighborhood, where the diplomats and generals lived in sprawling houses with tall, wrought-iron gates. She saw a woman in bare feet and a tattered shawl wandering through an open gate and up the driveway, where a group of men were washing a fleet of Mercedes-Benzes and Land Rovers. One of the men shouted at the woman to leave, but the woman stood where she was, a bony arm stretched out before her, her face shrouded in shadow. Another man finally dug in his pocket and threw out a handful of coins. The woman ran after the coins with terrible speed, checking the road suspiciously as she gathered them into her bosom. Power. The word fixed in my mother's mind like a curse. In America, it had generally remained hidden from view until you dug beneath the surface of things, until you visited an Indian reservation or spoke to a black person whose trust you had earned. But here power was undisguised, indiscriminate, naked, always fresh in the memory. Power had taken Lolo and yanked him back into line just when he thought he had escaped, making him feel its weight, letting him know that his life wasn't his own. That's how things were. You couldn't change it. You could just live by the rules, so simple once you learned them. And so Lolo had made his peace with power, learning the wisdom of forgetting, just as Lolo's brother-in-law had done, making millions as a high official in the National Oil Company, just as another brother had tried to do, only he had miscalculated and was now reduced to stealing pieces of silverware whenever he came for a visit, selling them later for loose cigarettes. My mother remembered what Lolo had told her once when her constant questioning had finally touched a nerve. Guilt is a luxury only foreigners can afford, he had said. Like saying whatever pops into your head. She didn't know what it was like to lose everything, to wake up and feel her belly eating itself. She didn't know how crowded and treacherous the path to security could be. Without absolute concentration, one could easily slip, tumble backwards. He was right, of course. My mother was a foreigner. Middle class and white and protected by her heredity, whether she wanted protection or not. She could always leave if things got too messy. That possibility negated anything she might say to Lolo. It was the unbreachable barrier between them. She looked out the window now and saw that Lolo and I had moved on. The grass flattened where the two of us had been. 
The sight made her shudder slightly, and she rose to her feet, filled with a sudden panic. Power was taking her son. Looking back, I'm not sure that Lolo ever fully understood what my mother was going through during these years, why the things he was working so hard to provide for her seemed only to increase the distance between them. He was not a man to ask himself such questions. Instead, he maintained his concentration, and over the period that we lived in Indonesia, he proceeded to climb. With the help of his brother-in-law, he landed a new job in the government relations office of an American oil company. We moved to a house in a better neighborhood. A car replaced the motorcycle. A television and hi-fi replaced the crocodiles and Tata the ape. Lola could sign for our dinners at a company club. Sometimes I would overhear him and my mother arguing in their bedroom, usually about her refusal to attend his company dinner parties, where American businessmen from Texas and Louisiana would slap Lolo's back and boast about the palms they had greased to obtain the new offshore drilling rights, while their wives complained to my mother about the quality of Indonesian help. He would ask her how it would look for him to go alone, and a reminder that these were her own people, and my mother's voice would rise up to almost a shout, They are not my people. Such arguments were rare, though. My mother and Lolo would remain cordial through the birth of my sister, Maya, through the separation and eventual divorce, up until the last time I saw Lolo, ten years later, when my mother helped him travel to Los Angeles to treat a liver ailment that would kill him at the age of fifty-one. What tension I noticed had mainly to do with the gradual shift in my mother's attitude toward me. She had always encouraged my rapid acculturation in Indonesia. It had made me relatively self-sufficient, undemanding on a tight budget, and extremely well-mannered when compared to other American children. She had taught me to disdain the blend of ignorance and arrogance that all too often characterized Americans abroad. But she now had learned, just as Lolo had learned, the chasm that separated the life chances of an American from those of an Indonesian. She knew which side of the divide she wanted her child to be on. I was an American, she decided, and my true life lay elsewhere. Her initial efforts centered on education. Without the money to send me to the international school, where most of Jakarta's foreign children went, she had arranged, from the moment of our arrival, to supplement my Indonesian schooling with lessons from a U.S. correspondence course. Her efforts now redoubled. Five days a week, she came into my room at four in the morning, force-fed me breakfast, and proceeded to teach me my English lessons for three hours before I left for school and she went to work. I offered stiff resistance to this regimen. But in response to every strategy I concocted, whether unconvincing, my stomach hurts, or indisputably true, my eyes kept closing every five minutes. She would patiently repeat her most powerful defense. This is no picnic for me either, Buster. Then there were the periodic concerns with my safety, the voice of my grandmother ascendant. I remember coming home after dark one day to find a large search party of neighbors that had been assembled in our yard. My mother didn't look happy but she was so relieved to see me that it took her several minutes to notice a wet sock, brown with mud, wrapped around my forearm. "'What's that?' my mother asked. "'What?' I said. "'That. Why do you have a sock wrapped around your arm?' I cut myself. "'Let's see. It's not that bad. Barry, let me see it.' I unwrapped the sock, exposing a long gash that ran from my wrist to my elbow. It had missed the vein by an inch, but ran deeper at the muscle where pinkish flesh pulsed from under the skin. Hoping to calm her down, I explained what had happened. A friend and I had hitchhiked out to his family farm, 
and it started to rain, and on the farm was a terrific place to mudslide, and there was this barbed wire fence that marked the farm's boundary, and... Lolo? My mother laughs at this point when she tells the story. The laugh of a mother forgiving her child those sins that have passed. But her tone alters slightly, as she remembers that Lolo suggested we wait until morning to get me stitched up, and that she had to browbeat our only neighbor with a car to drive us to the hospital. She remembers that most of the lights were out at the hospital when we arrived, with no receptionist in sight. She recalls the sound of her frantic footsteps echoing through the hallway, until she finally found two young men in boxer shorts, playing dominoes in a small room in the back. When she asked them where the doctors were, the men cheerfully replied, We are the doctors, and went on to finish their game before slipping on their trousers and giving me twenty stitches that would leave an ugly scar. And through it all was the pervading sense that her child's life might slip away when she wasn't looking, that everyone else around her would be too busy trying to survive to notice, that when it counted, she would have plenty of sympathy, but no one beside her who believed in fighting against a threatening fate. It was those sorts of issues, I realize now, less tangible than school transcripts or medical services, that became the focus of her lessons with me. If you want to grow into a human being, she would say to me, you're going to need some values. Honesty. Lolo should not have hidden the refrigerator in the storage room when the tax officials came, even if everyone else, including the tax officials, expected such things. Fairness. The parents of wealthier students should not give television sets to the teachers during Ramadan, and their children could take no pride in the higher marks they might have received. Straight talk. If you didn't like the shirt I bought for your birthday, you should have just said so, instead of keeping it wadded up at the bottom of your closet. Independent judgment. Just because the other children tease the poor boy about his haircut doesn't mean you have to do it too. It was as if, by traveling halfway around the globe, away from the smugness and hypocrisy that familiarity had disclosed, my mother could give voice to the virtues of her Midwestern past and offer them up in distilled form. The problem was that she had few reinforcements. Whenever she took me aside for such commentary, I would dutifully nod my assent, but she must have known that many of her ideas seemed rather impractical. Lolo had merely explained the poverty, the corruption, the constant scramble for security. He hadn't created it. It remained all around me and bred a relentless skepticism. My mother's confidence in needlepoint virtues depended on a faith I didn't possess, a faith that she would refuse to describe as religious, that in fact her experience told her was sacrilegious, a faith that rational, thoughtful people could shape their own destiny. In a land where fatalism remained a necessary tool for enduring hardship, where ultimate truths were kept separate from day-to-day -day realities, she was a lonely witness for secular humanism, a soldier for New Deal, Peace Corps, position paper liberalism. She had only one ally in all this, and that was the distant authority of my father. Increasingly, she would remind me of his story, how he had grown up poor in a poor country, in a poor continent, how his life had been hard, as hard as anything that Lolo might have known. He hadn't cut corners, though, or played all the angles. He was diligent and honest, no matter what it cost him. He had led his life according to principles that demanded a different kind of toughness, principles that promised a higher form of power. I would follow his example, my mother decided. I had no choice. It was in the genes. You have me to thank for your eyebrows, my mother said. Your father had these little wispy eyebrows that don't amount to much. But your brains, 
your character, you got from him. Her message came to embrace black people generally. She would come home with books on the civil rights movement, the recordings of Mahalia Jackson, the speeches of Dr. King. When she told me stories of school children in the South who were forced to read books handed down from wealthier white schools, but who went on to become doctors and lawyers and scientists, I felt chastened by my reluctance to wake up and study in the mornings. If I told her about the goose-stepping demonstrations my Indonesian Boy Scout troop performed in front of the president, she might mention a different kind of march, a march of children no older than me, a march for freedom. Every black man was Thurgood Marshall or Sidney Poitier, every black woman Fannie Lou Hamer or Lena Horne. To be black was to be the beneficiary of a great inheritance, a special destiny, glorious burdens that only we were strong enough to bear. Burdens we were to carry with style. More than once, my mother would point out, Harry Belafonte is the best-looking man on the planet. It was in this context that I came across the picture in Life magazine of the black man who had tried to peel off his skin. I imagine other black children, then and now, undergoing similar moments of revelation. Perhaps it comes sooner for most, the parents' warning not to cross the boundaries of a particular neighborhood, or the frustration of not having hair like Barbie no matter how long you tease and comb, or the tale of a father's or grandfather's humiliation at the hands of an employer or a cop overheard while you're supposed to be asleep. Maybe it's easier for a child to receive the bad news in small doses, allowing for a system of defenses to build up, although I suspect I was one of the luckier ones, having been given a stretch of childhood free from self-doubt. I know that seeing that article was violent for me, an ambush attack. My mother had warned me about bigots, they were ignorant, uneducated people that one should avoid. If I could not yet consider my own mortality, Lolo had helped me understand the potential of disease to cripple, of accidents to maim, of fortunes to decline. I could correctly identify common greed or cruelty in others, and sometimes even in myself. But that one photograph had told me something else, that there was a hidden enemy out there, one that could reach me without anyone's knowledge, not even my own. When I got home that night from the embassy library, I went into the bathroom and stood in front of the mirror, with all my senses and limbs seemingly intact, looking as I had always looked, and wondered if something was wrong with me. The alternative seemed no less frightening, that the adults around me lived in the midst of madness. The initial flush of anxiety would pass, and I would spend my remaining year in Indonesia much as I had before. I retained a confidence that was not always justified and an irrepressible talent for mischief. But my vision had been permanently altered. On the imported television shows that had started running in the evenings in Indonesia, I began to notice that Cosby never got the girl on I Spy, that the black man on Mission Impossible spent all his time underground. I noticed that there was nobody like me in the Sears Roba Christmas catalog that Toot and Gramps sent to us, and that Santa was a white man. I kept these observations to myself, deciding that either my mother didn't see them or she was trying to protect me and that I shouldn't expose her efforts as having failed. I still trusted my mother's love, but I faced the prospect that her account of the world and my father's place in it was somehow incomplete. It took me a while to recognize them in the crowd. When the sliding doors first parted, all I could make out was the blur of smiling, anxious faces tilted over the guardrail. 
Eventually, I spotted a tall, silver-haired man towards the rear of the crowd, with a short, owlish woman barely visible beside him. Toot gathered me into a hug and tossed candy and chewing gum lays around my neck. Gramps threw an arm over my shoulder. They took me to the new car they had bought, and Gramps showed me how to operate the air conditioning. We drove along the highway, past fast-food restaurants and economy motels, and used car lots strung with festoons. I told them about the trip and everyone back in Jakarta. Gramps told me what they'd planned for my welcome-back dinner. Toot suggested I needed new clothes for school. Then, suddenly, the conversation stopped. I realized that I was to live with strangers. The new arrangement hadn't sounded so bad when my mother first explained it to me. It was time for me to attend an American school, she had said. I'd run through all the lessons in my correspondence course. She said that she and Maya would be joining me in Hawaii very soon, a year, tops, and that she'd try to make it there for Christmas. She reminded me of what a great time I'd had living with Gramps and Toot just the previous summer, the ice cream, the cartoons, the days at the beach. And you won't have to wake up at four in the morning, she said, a point that I found most compelling. It was only now, as I began to adjust to an indefinite stay and watch my grandparents in the rhythm of their schedules, that I realized how much the two of them had changed. After my mother and I had left, they had sold the big rambling house near the university and now rented a small two-bedroom apartment in a high-rise on Baratania Street. Gramps had left the furniture business to become a life insurance agent, but as he was unable to convince himself that people needed what he was selling and was sensitive to rejection, the work went badly. Every Sunday night, I would watch him grow more and more irritable as he gathered up his briefcase and set up a TV tray in front of his chair, following the lead of every possible distraction, until he would finally chase us out of the living room and try to schedule appointments with prospective clients over the phone. Sometimes I would tiptoe into the kitchen for a soda, and I could hear the desperation creeping out of his voice, the stretch of silence that followed when the people on the other end explained why Thursday wasn't good and Tuesday not much better, and then Gramps' heavy sigh after he had hung up the phone, his hands fumbling through the files in his lap like those of a card player who's deep in the hole. Often, my grandparents argued, an argument rooted in the rarely mentioned fact that Toot earned more money than Gramps. She had proved to be a trailblazer of sorts, the first woman vice president of a local bank, and although Gramps liked to say he always encouraged her in her career, her job had become a source of delicacy and bitterness between them, as his commissions paid fewer and fewer of the family's bills. Not that Toot had anticipated her success. Without a college education, she had started out as a secretary to help defray the costs of my unexpected birth. But she had a quick mind and sound judgment and the capacity for sustained work. Slowly she had risen, playing by the rules, until she reached the threshold where competence didn't suffice. There she would stay for twenty years, with scarcely a vacation, watching her male counterparts keep moving up the corporate ladder, playing a bit loose with information passed on between the ninth hole and the ride to the clubhouse, becoming wealthy men. More than once, my mother would tell Toot that the bank shouldn't get away with such blatant sexism. But Toot would just poo-poo my mother's remarks, saying that everybody could find a reason to complain about something. Toot didn't complain. Every morning, she woke up at 5 a.m. and changed from the frowsy moo-moos she wore around the apartment into a tailored suit and high-heeled pumps. Her face powdered, her hips girdled, her thinning hair bolstered, she would board the 6.30 bus to arrive at her downtown office before anyone else. From time to time, she would admit a grudging pride in her work, 
and took pleasure in telling us the inside story behind the local financial news. When I got older, though, she would confide in me that she had never stopped dreaming of a house with a white picket fence, days spent baking or playing bridge or volunteering at the local library. I was surprised by this admission, for she rarely mentioned hopes or regrets. It may or may not have been true that she would have preferred the alternative history she imagined for herself, but I came to understand that her career spanned a time when the work of a wife outside the home was nothing to brag about, for her or for Gramps, that it represented only lost years, broken promises. What Toot believed kept her going were the needs of her grandchildren and the stoicism of her ancestors. So long as you kids do well, Bear, she would say more than once, that's all that really matters. That's how my grandparents had come to live. They still prepared sashimi for the now infrequent guests to their apartment. Gramps still wore Hawaiian shirts to the office, and Toot still insisted on being called Toot. Otherwise, though, the ambitions they had carried with them to Hawaii had slowly drained away, until regularity of schedules and pastimes and the weather became their principal consolation. They would occasionally grumble about how the Japanese had taken over the islands how the Chinese controlled island finance. During the Watergate hearings, my mother would pry out of them that they had voted for Nixon, the law and order candidate, in 1968. We didn't go to the beach or on hikes together anymore. At night, Gramps watched television while Toots sat in her room reading murder mysteries. Their principal excitement now came from new drapes or a standalone freezer. It was as if they had bypassed the satisfaction that should come with the middle years, the convergence of maturity with time left, energy with means, a recognition of accomplishment that frees the spirit. At some point in my absence, they had decided to cut their losses and settle for hanging on. They saw no more destinations to hope for. As the summer drew to a close, I became increasingly restless to start school. My main concern was finding companions my own age, but for my grandparents, my admission into Punahou Academy heralded the start of something grand, an elevation in the family status that they took great pains to let everyone know. Started by missionaries in 1841, Punahou had grown into a prestigious prep school, an incubator for island elites. Its reputation had helped sway my mother in her decision to send me back to the States. It hadn't been easy to get me in, my grandparents told her. There was a long waiting list, and I was considered only because of the intervention of Gramps' boss, who was an alumnus. My first experience with affirmative action, it seems, had little to do with race. So it was with a great rush of excitement that Gramps dropped me off in front of a large white stucco building for my first day of school. Inside, I sat at a table with four other children, and Miss Hefty, an energetic, middle-aged woman with short gray hair, took attendance. When she read my full name, I heard titters break across the room. A boy I had been talking to leaned over to me. I thought your name was Barry, he said. Would you prefer if we called you Barry? Miss Hefty asked. Barack is such a beautiful name. Your grandfather tells me your father is Kenyan. I used to live in Kenya, you know, teaching children just your age. It's such a magnificent country. Do you know what tribe your father is from? Her question brought on more giggles, and I remained speechless for a moment. When I finally said Luo, a sandy-haired boy behind me repeated the word with a loud hoot, like the sound of a monkey. The children could no longer contain themselves, and it took a stern reprimand from Miss Hefty before the class would settle down and we could mercifully move on to the next person on the list. 
It was a ten-year-old's nightmare. Still, in my discomfort that first month, I was no worse off than the other children who were relegated to the category of misfits, the girls who were too tall or too shy, the boy who was mildly hyperactive, the kids whose asthma excused them from P.E. There was one child in my class, though, who reminded me of a different sort of pain. Her name was Coretta, and before my arrival she had been the only black person in our grade. She was plump and dark and didn't seem to have many friends. From the first day we avoided each other, but watched from a distance, as if direct contact would only remind us more keenly of our isolation. Finally, during recess one hot, cloudless day, we found ourselves occupying the same corner of the playground. I don't remember what we said to each other, but I remember that suddenly she was chasing me around the jungle gyms and swings. She was laughing brightly, and I teased her and dodged this way and that, until she finally caught me and we fell to the ground breathless. When I looked up, I saw a group of children, faceless before the glare of the sun, pointing down at us. Coretta has a boyfriend. Coretta has a boyfriend. The chants grew louder as more kids circled around us. She's not my girlfriend, I stammered. I looked to Coretta for some assistance, but she just stood there looking down at the ground. Coretta's got a boyfriend. Why don't you kiss her, Mr. Boyfriend? I'm not her boyfriend, I shouted. I ran up to Coretta and gave her a slight shove. She staggered back and looked up at me, but still said nothing. Leave me alone, I shouted again. And suddenly Coretta was running, faster and faster, until she disappeared from sight. Appreciative laughs rose around me. Then the bell rang, and the teachers appeared to round us back into class. For the rest of the afternoon, I was haunted by the look on Coretta's face just before she had started to run her disappointment, and the accusation. I wanted to explain to her somehow that it had been nothing personal. I just never had a girlfriend before, and I saw no particular need to have one now. But I didn't even know if that was true. I knew only that it was too late for explanations, that somehow I had been tested and found wanting, and whenever I snuck a glance at Coretta's desk, I would see her with her head bent over her work, appearing as if nothing had happened, pulled into herself, and asking no favors. My act of betrayal bought me some room from the other children, and like Coretta, I was mostly left alone. I made a few friends and managed to toss a wobbly football around, but from that day forward, a part of me felt trampled on, crushed, and I took refuge in the life that my grandparents led. After school let out, I would walk the five blocks to our apartment. If I had any change in my pocket, I might stop off at a newsstand run by a blind man who would let me know what new comics had come in. Gramps would be at home to let me into the apartment, and as he lay down for his afternoon nap, I would watch cartoons and sitcom reruns. At 4.30, I would wake Gramps, and we would drive downtown to pick up Toot. My homework would be done in time for dinner, which we ate in front of the television. There I would stay for the rest of the evening, negotiating with Gramps over which programs to watch, sharing the latest snack food he discovered at the supermarket. At 10 o'clock, I went to my room, Johnny Carson came on at that time, and there was no negotiating around that, and I would fall asleep to the sounds of Top 40 on the radio. Nestled in the soft, forgiving bosom of America's consumer culture, I felt safe. It was as if I had dropped into a long hibernation. I wonder sometimes how long I might have stayed there had it not been for the telegram Toot found in the mailbox one day. Your father's coming to see you, Toot said. Next month, two weeks after your mother gets here. They'll both stay through New Year's. 
She carefully folded the paper and slipped it into a drawer in the kitchen. Both she and Gramps fell silent. The way I imagine people react when the doctor tells them they have a serious but curable illness. For a moment, the air was sucked out of the room, and we stood suspended, alone with our thoughts. Well, Toot said finally, I suppose we better start looking for a place where he can stay. Gramps took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Should be one hell of a Christmas. Over lunch, I explained to a group of boys that my father was a prince. My grandfather, see, he's a chief. It's sort of like the king of a tribe, you know, like the Indians. So that makes my father a prince. He'll take over when my grandfather dies. What about after that? One of my friends asked as we emptied our trays into the trash bin. I mean, will you go back and be a prince? Well, if I want to, I could. It's, it's sort of complicated, see, because the tribe is full of warriors. Like Obama, that, that means burning spear. The men in our tribe all want to be chief, so my father has to settle these feuds before I can come. As the words tumbled out of my mouth, and I felt the boys readjust to me, more curious and familiar as we bumped into each other in the line back to class, a part of me really began to believe the story. But another part of me knew that what I was telling them was a lie, something I'd constructed from the scraps of information I'd picked up from my mother. After a week of my father in the flesh, I had decided that I preferred his more distant image, an image I could alter on a whim, or ignore when convenient. If my father hadn't exactly disappointed me, he remained something unknown, something volatile and vaguely threatening. Miss Hefty has invited your father to come to school on Thursday. She wants him to speak to the class, my mother told me. I couldn't imagine worse news. I spent that night and all the next day trying to suppress thoughts of the inevitable. The faces of my classmates when they heard about mud huts, the painful jokes afterwards. Each time I remembered, my body squirmed as if it had received a jolt to the nerves. I was still trying to figure out how I'd explain myself when my father walked into our class the next day. Miss Hefty welcomed him eagerly, and as I took my seat I heard several children ask each other what was going on. I became more desperate when our math teacher, a big no-nonsense Hawaiian named Mr. Eldridge, came into the room, followed by thirty confused children from his homeroom next door. We have a special treat for you today, Miss Hefty began. Barry Obama's father is here, and he's come all the way from Kenya, in Africa, to tell us about his country. The other kids looked at me as my father stood up, and I held my head stiffly, trying to focus on a vacant point on the blackboard behind him. He had been speaking for some time before I could finally bring myself back to the moment. He was leaning against Miss Hefty's thick oak desk and describing the deep gash in the earth where mankind had first appeared. He spoke of the wild animals that still roamed the plains, the tribes that still required a young boy to kill a lion to prove his manhood. He spoke of the customs of the Luo, how elders received the utmost respect and made laws for all to follow under great trunk trees. He told us of Kenya's struggle to be free, how the British had wanted to stay and unjustly rule the people, just as they had in America, how many had been enslaved only because of the color of their skin, just as they had in America but that Kenyans, like all of us in the room, longed to be free and develop themselves through hard work and sacrifice. When he finished, Miss Hefty was absolutely beaming with pride. All my classmates applauded heartily, and a few struck up the courage to ask questions, each of which my father appeared to consider carefully before answering. The bell rang for lunch, 
and Mr. Eldridge came up to me. You've got a pretty impressive father. A month. That's how long we would have together. The five of us in my grandparents' living room most evenings, during the day on drives around the island, or on short walks past the private landmarks of a family. The lot where my father's apartment had once stood. The remodeled hospital where I had been born. My grandparents' first house in Hawaii, before the one on University Avenue. A house I had never known. There was so much to tell in that single month. So much explaining to do. And yet when I reach back into my memory for the words of my father, the small interactions or conversations we might have had, they seem irretrievably lost. Perhaps they're imprinted too deeply, his voice the seed of all sorts of tangled arguments I carry on with myself, as impenetrable now as the pattern of my genes, so that all I can perceive is the worn-out shell. My wife offers a simpler explanation. The boys and their fathers don't always have much to say to each other, unless and until they trust. And this may come closer to the mark, for I often felt mute before him, and he never pushed me to speak. I'm left mostly with images that appear and die off in my mind like distant sounds. His head thrown back in laughter at one of Gramps' jokes as my mother and I hang Christmas ornaments. His grip on my shoulder as he introduces me to one of his old friends from college. The narrowing of his eyes, the stroking of his sparse goatee as he reads his important books. Images and his effect on other people. For whenever he spoke, his one leg draped over the other, his large hands outstretched to direct or deflect attention, his voice deep and sure, cajoling and laughing, I would see a sudden change take place in the family. Gramps became more vigorous and thoughtful, my mother more bashful. Even Toot, smoked out of the foxhole of her bedroom, would start sparring with him about politics or finance, stabbing the air with her blue-veined hands to make a point. It was as if his presence had summoned the spirit of earlier times, and allowed each of them to reprise his or her old role, as if Dr. King had never been shot, and the Kennedys continued to beckon the nation, and war and riot and famine were nothing more than temporary setbacks, and there was nothing to fear but fear itself. It fascinated me, the strange power of his, and for the first time I began to think of my father as something real and immediate, perhaps even permanent. Two weeks later, he was gone. In that time, we stand together in front of the Christmas tree and pose for pictures, the only ones I have of us together, me holding an orange basketball, his gift to me, him showing off the tie I have bought him. Ah, people will know that I am very important wearing such a tie. At a Dave Brubeck concert, I struggle to sit quietly in the dark auditorium beside him, unable to follow the spare equations of sound that the performers make, careful to clap whenever he claps. For brief spells in the day, I will lie beside him, the two of us alone in the apartment sublet from a retired old woman whose name I forget, the place full of quilts and doilies and knitted seat covers, and I read my book while he reads his. He remains opaque to me, a present mass. When I mimic his gestures or turns of phrase, I know neither their origins nor their consequences. Can't see how they play out over time. But I grow accustomed to his company. The day of his departure, as my mother and I helped him pack his bags, he unearthed two records, forty-fives, in dull brown dust jackets. Ah, Betty, look here. I forgot that I had brought these for you. 
the sounds of your continent. It took him a while to puzzle out my grandparents' old stereo, but finally the disc began to turn, and he gingerly placed the needle on the groove. A tinny guitar lick opened, then the sharp horns, the thump of drums, then the guitar again, and then the voices, clean and joyful as they rode up the backbeat, urging us on. Come, Betty, my father said. You will learn from the master. And suddenly his slender body was swaying back and forth. The lush sound was rising. His arms were swinging as they cast an invisible net. His feet wove over the floor in offbeats, his bad legs stiff but his rump high, his head back, his hips moving in a tight circle. The rhythm quickened, the horn sounded, and his eyes closed to follow his pleasure. And then one eye opened to peek down at me, and his solemn face spread into a silly grin, and my mother smiled, and my grandparents walked in to see what all the commotion was about. I took my first tentative steps with my eyes closed, down, up, my arms swinging, the voices lifting. And I hear him still. As I follow my father into the sound, he lets out a quick shout, bright and high, a shout that leaves much behind and reaches out for more, a shout that cries for laughter. Context of White Supremacy The number to dial is 760-569-7676 The code is 564-9 Three pound. Give out the number one more time again. Dialogue, exchange of views. This is supposed to be study session, exchange of ideas, views between non white people. So hopefully you all took great notes. The number again 760 569 76. Seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you have questions. Wow, that was a highly uh, entertaining and constructive segment, uh, at least for me. Um, in fact, I'm going to go back and read one section that I just, I'm just going to read the section, but, uh, yeah, I'm just going to, I'll just read the section. Okay. This is, I'm not sure if my page numbers will match up correctly. Uh, if you have a paperback edition or, you know, hardback, whatever, whatever version of the book you have, it might not be exactly the same okay this on my edition this is page 23 but I have the PDF so I'm not really sure where this would be in the in the book um, this is he's writing about his mom 
and uh, their dialogue. This is when he was still in Indonesia. He sang his mom. Her message came back. Excuse me. Her message came to embrace black people generally. She would come home with books on the civil rights movement, the recordings of Mahalia Jackson, the speeches of Dr. King. When she told me stories of school children in the South who were forced to read books handed down from wealthier white schools, but who went on to become doctors and lawyers and scientists, I felt chastened by my reluctance to wake up and study in the mornings. If I told her about the goose-stepping demonstrations my Indonesian Boy Scout troop performed in front of the president, she might mention a different kind of march. A march of children, no older than me. A march for freedom. Every black man was Thurgood Marshall or Sidney Poitier, cowbell. Every black woman, Fannie Lou Hamer or Lena Horne, cowbell. To be black was to be the beneficiary of a great inheritance, a special destiny, glorious burdens that only we were strong enough to bear. Burdens we were to carry with style. More than once, my mother would point out, Harry Belafonte, cowbell, is the best looking man on the planet. It was in this context that I came across the picture in Life magazine of the black man who had tried to peel off his skin. I imagine other black children then and now undergoing similar movements of revelation. Perhaps it comes sooner for most the parents warning not to cross the boundaries of a particular neighborhood or the frustration of not having hair like Barbie no matter how long you tease and comb or the tale of a father's or grandfather's humiliation at the hands of an employer or a cop overheard while you're asleep Maybe it's easier for a child to receive the bad news in small doses, allowing for a system of defenses to build up. Although I suspect I was one of the luckier ones, having been given a stretch of childhood free from self-doubt. I will not read the whole thing. We just heard the president <laughs> read it. I mean, wow, that passage, I was, man, I could, uh, I could play that regularly and just have that, man, <laughs> to have the president of the United States giving what I think is an incredibly poignant uh, view on racism, white supremacy, and really capturing the hypocrisy of it all. I'm black and I'm proud. Oh, just oh, it's just crushing. <laughs> this uh, we carry this burden with style. I mean, that is just 
Oh, it is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. I've heard that. And I'm, I'm saying all this because I think this is accurate. I remember when I read this, I thought, I think I've said that repeatedly on the program, President Obama does not seem quite as few confused as many of the non-white people I know. And I said when I read his book, he had a lot of things in there where I said, wow, he doesn't seem quite as confused as many of the other non-white people that I bump into. And I would say this is one. Even a lot of non-white people who say that they are not confused still seem uh, black people have carried the burden of being a racist. Uh, excuse me. Black people have carried the burden of being victims of white supremacy with style. I think one of the lines I've said on the program repeatedly, do you really want to win or just look good losing? I mean, oh, the hypocrisy of it all. Black and I'm proud in an environment where black, even to this day, Sammy Sosa, you still got hordes of black people bleaching it, deactivate the white chip she was talking about even in India you've got hordes it is a billion dollar global industry even today 2012 skin bleaching billion dollar global industry skin bleaching in that environment to have black people saying black and proud just incredible passage even when it goes on a little further uh, he talks about some of the things that he noticed right I'm supposed to be black and I'm proud the initial flush of anxiety would pass and I would spend my remaining year in Indonesia much as I had before. I retained a confidence that was not always justified and an irrepressible talent for mischief, but my vision had been permanently altered. On the imported television shows that had started running in the evenings, I began to notice that Cosby never got the girl on I Spy that the black man on Mission Impossible spent all his time underground. I noticed that there was nobody like me in the Sears Roebuck Christmas catalog that Toot and Gramps sent us and that Santa was a white man. Just what a passage. Uh, that one I thought was, I mean, pretty much this whole section, I think it's just great great information to analyze the other portion the segment where he talks about the incident on the playground oh my gosh man again that is just whoo that is brilliant to have the president of the united states giving that anecdote white people make that happen every day stomp on this other black person and we will maybe hook you up with an extra piece of cornbread today stomp on these other five black people say something nasty about black females say something nasty about black males and maybe we'll hook you up with a record contract white people do that every day and to have the president of the united states giving oh my god that is that might be happening to us right now what's going on the plate i'm good I will hush if anybody is on the line and you want to share. I will mute. I Man, I wouldn't care if every listener out there said, I think President Obama is a no good Uncle Tom. His book is horrible. I can't believe you're wasting time on this. If everybody out listening took that view, I would probably still do the rest of these because I just think this is incredible. Uh, I will mute my line. I think that's B more. Uh, your line is open, and I think this might be prize. I hope I got the names correct. Your two lines are open.
Um, peace, Gush, and all the other listeners. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I also noted the things you talked about, um, but I'll start at the beginning of my notes, um, which, where um, he was talking about his mother having that job teaching English, and some of the people there were making fun of Indonesians until they found out that she was married to one. Um, it made me think of, like, how um, racism is so refined now and also the question, um, what do whites talk about when there are no non-whites present? Um, that made me think about that. Um, and then when she talked about um, the hidden power in America and she was talking all this stuff about non-whites, I believe um, that she meant, well, she mentioned the Indian reservation as well as speaking to a black person whose trust you had earned. That stuck out to me as well. And then when she was talking about his mother was middle class and white, protected by heredity, whether she wanted to be protected by it or not. And then, um, what else? Oh, when um, Lolo, her husband, asked her to attend the dinner party with other white, and he called them her people. And she was so uh, defensive, and those are not my people, and things like that. Um when she when she was educating Barack before he actually went to school, and he was talking about how he didn't, I guess, like to get up that early and do things like that, and she said, this is no picnic for me either, Buster. The whole picnic stuck out to me, too. Um, I did note that he used the word fair and fairness, um, and how his talk about how his mother embra- embraced black people, that stuck out to me as well. Um, how she talks about how bigots are ignorant and uneducated. Um, I was like, wow, if anybody's ignorant about racism, it's black people. We don't have to educate white people on racism. So that stuck out. Um, the talk about affirmative action and how he said his first encounter had little to do with race stuck out as well. And then um, the last thing that really stuck out to me is how um, when his father sent the telegram to say that he was coming, he said that the look on his grandparents' face was like as if a doctor had told them they had a serious but um, curable, curable illness or something like that. That stuck out as well, but I'll stop for now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I wanted to piggyback off the idea. You know, I, I was also looking at the line where uh, he says, my mother had warned me about bigots. They were ignorant, uneducated people one should avoid. Now, you know, I, I think with Obama, like he is, I mean, most of us, you know, with without a, maybe without a white parent, you know, at least when we come home, we're at peace. But it's like he was at war in school, going to work, and when he came home. So it's kind of like, you know, it's hard not to be confused growing up in a Petri dish. And I think this is part of the confusion that she's telling him that, you know, these bigots, so-called, I guess you would say they were unrefined white supremacists, were ignorant, uneducated people one should avoid. That's like the idea that all white supremacists, you know, wear a white hood, pointy white hood. But it's like that's just the beginning of it. You know, he's thinking that they're the only white supremacists out there. You know, she's not telling him that it's a system. You know, it's just those few off to the side, you know, 
if we just keep on them, everything will be all right. And it's really giving him a distorted view. And if you look at the next line, he says, uh, but the photograph had told me something else, that there was a hidden enemy out there, that one could reach me, uh, one that could reach me without anyone's knowledge, not even my own. So it's almost like, so then he stands in the mirror. I went to the bathroom and stood in front of the mirror with all my senses and limbs seemingly intact, looking as I'd always looked and wondered if something was wrong with me. So it's kind of like that's, that's the first uh, seed planted of anti-blackness. You know, it was being planted there. So I, I think that was just a pivotal moment for him. Uh, he said basically that he got he was a little bit older, so he could handle it uh, better. But uh, he he talked about the younger people who just didn't have those defenses or weren't shielded from it at a young age, which is probably the majority of the non-whites on the planet. So I just thought that was very uh, fascinating. I um I, I I think you all have all all everything that you all have touched on I think is significant. Um excellent notes. Um the point I guess I would make with the anti blackness and um <laughs> the, uh it is really any time under racism white supremacy is important and you should be doing everything you can to solve the problem uh, but I would say this is a very I would say significant time just the things that are happening the report I think non mighty wiki shared on the program we had Sunday with uh, Miss Renithia Tate that they did a, a news report and I, I'm sure people have heard of it it's been widely reported about the increase in <laughs> anti-blackness and they use the term anti-blackness in the article and they related it to President Obama uh, so I guess that's going with that term since that's what they're saying now the anti-blackness I would say it was probably there from the very beginning like I've heard white people they said that they began being racist at the moment of conception at the moment that the sperm hit the egg the racism them, their practice of racism began now, I don't know if that's true or not need some more information on that but I would say the anti-blackness I mean I don't know how you can have a white mother a white excuse me a white mother white grandparents and not have anti-blackness coming at you from birth uh, and I would say evidence of anti-blackness this is one of the big highlights that I had when oh I'm just going to read read the text I will note again, this is the uh, the audio book is abridged. And I mean, it's looking like they got whole chunks got to be missing because we are only we're not even 50 pages into the book and we're on disc two. There are only six discs here. So, I mean, there's got to be like massive omissions. Uh, that's, I hate excuse me. I hate abridged text. I really make an effort to not get anything that's abridged because you just don't know what they're taking out. Uh, so. It's got to be huge. So anybody, if you've read the book, if you're reading it now and you read anything, you see anything that is not in the audio book, please share, please share. But I'll read uh, 
this is, I think, major anti-blackness on display right here. This is on, again, I'm sorry, I don't know if the uh, pages are congruent. My apologies. Uh, so he's talking about his life when he, this is after he's moved back to Hawaii and his life there. And he's all adjusted. And he says he was nested in the soft, forgiving bosom of America's consumer culture. I felt safe. It was as if I had dropped into a long hibernation. I wonder sometimes how long I might have stayed there had it not been for the telegram toot found in the mailbox one day. Your father is coming to see you. That right there, I think, is incredible. The fact that his safety was disturbed by the presence of his black father. Like, whoa, I'm sure white people, they do the math on something like that real quick. That went last week, our listener, I think might have been prized when he said, please, white people, confuse non-white people. That was one of the, the message I got from the interview with uh, Connie Martinson. I think that is something white people love about this narrative, whether it's true or not, whether this is all part of some racist narrative that they've cooked up about what they're going to say about him, whatever. Uh, white people love that aspect of President Obama's narrative that the father is absent. They love to read this. This sentence right there is huge for them. Oh, the, the evil, the presence of the evil. Blood. That's the same way that they think about black people. I'm sure they would. And I think that is huge anti-blackness. It's things like that, things like the incident on the playground, uh, his description about the... Uh, One moment. Sorry about that. The uh, the magazine with the skin bleaching photo. I think those incidents are way more significant in my view than getting off track about well is Frank Marshall Davis that is dad and all that I think these incidents are way more significant because that's stuff that we should be able to easy, easily relate to and it reveals so much about the system of white supremacy in my opinion um, that sentence do y'all get what I'm talking about do y'all think that's anti-blackness or does that not make sense yeah I, I think it makes sense uh, definitely um it's 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 kind of like the person who who raised you the first you know the first person you saw when you were born is someone who is dedicated to lying to you and deceiving you i mean i could see how it, it would be almost impossible to not be confused in that situation it's kind of like uh it's like a double whammy Because she says she loves them, but then she still is not going to tell them the truth about racism, white supremacy, because she's committed even more important than her son knowing the truth is her commitment to uh, racism, white supremacy. And I don't, I think that's something. Double whammy. That, yeah. Yep. You can, you can see that with his struggles. He, you know, look, looking in the mirror. No, she's not explaining any of that to him. Mr. Reed, you should be with us as well. 
Um, thank you. Um, first thing I'd like to say is I really appreciate um, you sharing these audio books um, because I just stay so busy and I'm not making an excuse. I read a lot, but I don't get to read books. And this allows me to read and I mean, hear the content of interesting books while I can still do other work. So I really appreciate the concept of, of you putting together this program. Um, I had a couple of comments, um, some about Indonesia. Um, why would she, you know, and I'm just throwing this out there. Why would, why would his mother be teaching him about white supremacy when she was engaged in white supremacist activities as a CIA agent in Indonesia? Um, and including uh, the stepfather, okay, both were working with the CIA, and usually that's how they send in their agents under the cover of some diplomat or some teacher or, you know, we're going to help the poor people and teach them how to read English and all this and that, all the while gathering intelligence so that they can identify targets that they need to take out. So it, it would not make sense to me for her to teach him about something um, that she is engaged in. So I, I don't know if people know that about her background, um, but it has been alleged and I, the evidence that I've read would suggest that she was working uh, for the CIA. I mean, usually, though, any kind of State Department programs, USAID, um, even ambassadors, uh, um, you know, we know from the Valerie Plain, um, you know, she was married to an ambassador, Dick Cheney outs her as a CIA agent. So most people who work in that area of the U.S. government are engaged in counterintelligence uh, activities, usually working with the CIA. Um, the other thing that I picked up, um, I spent like three years in Hawaii, um, um, my ex-wife is from there. She's a native from the island. Um, but when I first got there, um, me and some of my uh, fellow black soldiers, we noticed that uh, white people didn't own um, too, too many things down there. We picked up, and it was interesting to hear him say his grandparents were complaining about how much property the Japanese own and how the Chinese were running the finances there. Now, you know, when we made this uh, observation independent of talking to any of the locals who could tell us a history at this time, we just noticed when we was down in Waikiki, you know, going to the clubs and, and different tourist spots that, hey, this looks like little Tokyo or something. Or where are all these Japanese people coming from? Then some of the black people that played golf, um, they would tell us, yeah, man, these Japanese own most of all the golf courses and, and all of that, most of the hotels, most of the clubs and, and everything. And we had a little joke about, you know, well, they couldn't take the island during World War II, so they just came and they bought the island because they pretty much run everything on, on, on the island of Oahu. Okay, now, um, I, I don't know if they were talking about the Big Island. I think that's where he was living as, as a child. Uh, the Big Island is known as Hawaii, but the uh, most populated island is Oahu. So I thought that was pretty interesting that, you know, white people would be complaining that they're losing uh, property and, and, and control uh, of the system in Hawaii. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a shame, though, because the Native people are pretty much treated like 
um, most indigenous people, you know, they everything's been taken from them. They're not in control of everything. Um, most of the wealth that's being generated is going to other people. But I do consider uh, white people and Chinese, excuse me, not white people, but Japanese people and Chinese people as non-white, even though um, my experience with Japanese people is that they try to take on the characteristics of, of white people. And, and many of them that I interacted with, you know, they, you know how you can tell how somebody's looking down on you. And, you know, most of those Japanese tourists will be looking at what the hell these niggas doing here. You know, that's what, what we was, you know, getting. So um, I thought that was pretty interesting. But I also see that playing out here in the mainland in terms of um, who they are calling Hispanic people, but many of them, and I spent some time in Mexico as well, um, a lot of those what we're calling Mexicans are either a mix of um, um, the Spanish con conquerors who came there, um, who have made it with, you know, the indigenous tribes. So most of them are actually, I would call them Indians or indigenous people. Those are the ones that's coming across the border. Those are the ones that's uh, uh, taking over. They're taking over most of the Southwest. And I hear the same complaints. I hear the same complaints from white people um, being threatened by the population growth of, of, of Hispanics. Um, I mean, they even have a, a, a large population here in North Carolina. They, they've come here. And um, so, yeah, I just thought that that was pretty interesting that back during the 60s, um, I think that's when he was born uh, sometime in the 60s. I'm not sure. But that they were complaining about those things in Hawaii back then. And we were able to identify that independently, you know, once we got there. I'm talking about me and some of the fellow soldiers, you know, that white people don't own anything here uh, anymore. But I still think it's a shame that the indigenous people, you know, are suffering like they're suffering there. Um, that's all I got to say. I'll mute my mic. Good to hear from you, Mr. Reed. Uh, Praz and Be More, you, sh you both should uh, still be with us. Um, just I, this was, I think, one of the first highlights. Uh, I got the I did not have the hard copy of the book uh, last week. I got it uh, earlier this week and I started going through it. Uh, one of the first highlights that I put in the book was. Uh, again, the pages might not match up. This is on page 20. Um, they explained how Sukarno had frayed badly the nerves of a U.S. government already obsessed with the march of quote-unquote communism, whatever that means, through Indochina. Uh, what with his nationalistic rhetoric and his politic words, uh, his politics of non-alignment, he was as bad as Lumumba, black male, the Congo, continent of Africa, uh, people should know about Patrice Lumumba, but, uh, excuse me, white people were not fans of his, participated in his uh, assassination uh, around the 60s, same period of time. Uh, Nasir, also continent of Africa, white people were no fans of him, non-white person. Uh, only worse, I'm continuing to read, only worse given Indo uh, Indonesia's strategic importance. Uh, word was that the CIA had played a part in the coup, although nobody knew for sure. 
More certain was the fact that after the coup, the military had swept the countryside for supposed communist sympathizers. Uh, the death toll was anybody's guess. Just that right there, having that sort of admission, like, and I mean, anytime I see the involvement of any sort of enforcement agency, I just assume that this is racist man, white supremacy. These are white supremacist enforcement agencies. Anytime I see their involvement, I just, okay, this is the system at work. Uh, just the fact that that omission is there or admission, I'm sorry, the fact that that admission is there, it's in the book from the president. <laughs> that is uh wow. Uh, yeah. So what Mr. Reed was saying about his mom. Wow. In the book uh, and the audio book, they didn't even take it out there. Uh, anybody else, if you're on the line, if you want to dial in, I'll give out the number. It's seven, six, zero, five, six, nine, seven, six, seven, six. And the code is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Uh, press star six. If you have uh, questions, comments, we'll do about another uh, 15 minutes or so. And then we'll get to uh, the second segment. Um, one thing I did want to get in. This was also uh, some of my notes. I just, you know, they were regular. And then important things I had in bold print. This was in bold face type last week. They made the big to do about his white grandparent. They're liberal. They had the uh, term about his his mom this week that she was putting out her brand of what was it? Peace Corps liberalism, uh, policy paper li liberalism. Uh, and they had that long turned out to be lie about his grandparents leaving Kansas land of John Brown and bleeding Kansas left Kansas because of racism. The story that they told last week that they allowed their daughter Barack Obama's mother to play with a black child out on the front lawn and they got called nigger lover and all that and that's why they left and he said it turned out that that wasn't true so they got you know this big lie in the book that they admit yeah just he made that up but he called it white revisionism so pause right so you got that then they slip in this week that when the Watergate trial happened that his white mother was able to get his grandparents to admit that they voted for Nixon. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought these were liberal white people. I have never heard anyone say that Richard Nixon was a liberal. I've never heard that in all my days. Never. That was huge for me. I've never, if there, if someone has questioned about that, that seems to be very contradictory. You can't be or I just I would like to know is that is that standard where you have so-called white liberals who support Richard Nixon I would just I would like clarification on that um if I can offer on it and um I, I wrote a note and I'll get to it later the point about affirmative action but the thing about Nixon yeah um I was thinking about that too when they mentioned Nixon but um now most people um that are knowledgeable about the drug war and the impact it's having on black people and other non-white people in re-enslaving us on these concrete plantations. Uh, most people will cite the uh, uh, tremendous increase in the incarceration of black people during Nixon's administration. And Nixon is always blamed for it. But I did some research because I'm very interested in the subject. And I was like, I wonder what kind of Congress did Nixon have? He had a Democratic Congress. And Congress had to pass the legislation because it starts in the House, goes to the Senate, 
before it gets to the president's desk. So when people want to blame Republicans or blame Nixon or blame conservatives, hell, these liberals and Democrats are the ones that forward the legislation to his desk. All he needed to do is sign it. And that legislation created the DEA, okay, which Nixon stated, we got to find a way to target black people without seeming to. Okay, so I'm sure he worked with so-called liberals in the Democratic Party who were in control of, of the House and the Senate to uh, uh, pass this legislation that, that is having a huge impact on us today. Now, on the affirmative action, I'm glad he brought that up, that his um, first experience was with affirmative action had nothing to do with race. That's because of, he mentioned alumni. Somebody who was a former alumni of that college argued or, you know, had some sway or whatnot and got him in, in there as a favor to his grand, grandparents. And so when affirmative action is talked about, that is never brought up. That is how George Bush with his dumb ass got into uh, Harvard. It's because of his, uh, um, you know, father and grandfather. That's how they got in, getting to these Ivy League schools. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with who you know and, and who you are, what your family name is. And so, you know, that doesn't get talked about a lot. I mean, some academics do bring it up, but I would say the masses of people who argue back and forth about affirmative action, why they don't ever bring that up that, you know, if I, just because my father went somewhere, I'm getting into a school on his merits, not on my own merits. And so, yeah, yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, G-rated, G-rated. <laughs> Um, but the the affirmative uh, action piece, uh, I thought that was significant as well. And I I thought it did have something to do with race, just not President Obama's race. It had something to do with his white grandfather's race. The fact that he has a white grandparent, he has access to mm -hmm. yeah. the white welfare system where they can right. get things done that shouldn't happen or wouldn't happen if you were a non-white person. I thought that was totally incorrect. That, that in my opinion, missed the glaring lesson right there. Just having access to white people can be a massive aid in being able to get things done. And again, I have said, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Now, is it significant that he has a white parent and he's president? Now, some people, they don't they don't think it's that big a deal. I happen to think it's very significant. Um, that's hey, we can just keep that on the back burner as we proceed with the book and see how she factors into the book and, you know, what significance she has. We can even pay attention to her role already. I would say uh, just <laughs> the the passage going to his mom. This was one of my notes. The passage where I think be more you touched on it about the difficult I think pros as well both of you all about the difficulty for Lolo being a non-white male in a sexual tragic arrangement with a white person uh, and him coming home you don't have any peace and him drinking it said that he ended up dying from a liver ailment and I was thinking about the alcohol and I was thinking about 
wow, <laughs> going through this white, you got to be going to business dinners with these white people who are stealing and grafting, <laughs> doing all this illegal activities just to get by. And then you come home to another white person like, oh, my God. And Scotty's information. When, you know, anyway, I mean, it would drive you to drink. It would drive you crazy, uh, which sounds like that's what if he died at 51. That's disgraceful. That's uh, Michael Jackson died at 50. Disgraceful racism, white supremacy. But she has a line here. Uh, that, and again, the pay, I'm sorry, pages might not match up. This is page 21 for me from the PDF um, where his mom, I guess he's giving insight on the conflict with, with her and Lolo. Uh, she write or he writes, he was right. Lolo, meaning Lolo was right. Of course, uh, Barack Obama's mother was a foreigner, middle class and white and protected by her heredity whether she wanted protection or not she could always leave if things got too messy that possibility negated anything she might say to Lolo it was the unbreachable barrier between them I mean you could put that bam right in pieces of a puzzle it would fit perfectly I thought that was real important and revealed a lot about uh <laughs> his white mother racist suspect um gus um another question that i have is how did they get that land in hawaii okay because you land is very expensive in hawaii you just can't go over there like okay i live in north carolina i'm just going to move to south carolina you know i can pretty much find me a place you know i could rent or buy but to get land in Hawaii, you got to know somebody, okay? Because um, my ex-wife was telling me that, you know, if she wanted to, that she could lay claim to apply the land because of her Hawaiian uh, heritage and that, you know, land is set aside for them, sort of like, I guess, like indigenous people here here in America, even though, you know, they always break the treaties and break the rules. But I would be interested to find out how do how did they the grandparents just pick up and move from Kansas and move to Hawaii knowing what I know about Hawaii I mean if they so poor and all this and that how did they make that move who did they know again I contend and others have contended contended because of their work for the United States government is how they were able to get in there. And I, and also the talking about the um, school, the uh, prestigious school, prep school, uh, founded by a priest or, or, you know, whatever. And that is how they took over. That's how they took over uh, the Hawaiian Islands. And, and it's typical, uh, according to plan, they always send, I think, Kwame Turi's spoke about this you know they come in with the bibles first and you know then they come in with the guns and the land and and the priests or whatever the church was i don't know if it's the catholic church or whatever but um they played a vital role into invading the islands and, and eventually holding um i think it's, her name was queen lanai or princess lanai and, and holding her hostage and forcing her to pretty much sign over uh, the islands to white people. So I'm just curious, how did they make that move to Hawaii like that if they were so poor? That's a good point. I uh, spent some time in Hawaii as well, and it is uh, it's not the easiest thing to uh, get property. It's very expensive, and they do have 
rules and what have you. Now, again, this is white supremacy. When I was there, white people, I mean, it is white supremacy. (laughs) White people were taking up a lot of property. And I did talk to a lot of uh, local, I was on the Big Island, a lot of the local, uh, the natives, non-white people, they were, uh, I mean, it is white supremacy. I mean, it's the common story. They were complaining about white people stealing land. But that said, um, it's not the easiest thing to do uh, to just be able to go to Hawaii and, and snatch up property. So that is a, a great point. Um, we we have about five minutes uh, before the program wraps up. One funny thing <laughs> that reminded me, uh, Mr. Reeves reminded me of my time in uh, Hawaii. So I run because I was thinking about that earlier this week. I was in Hawaii for the duration of Hurricane Katrina, which is kind of odd um for a lot of reasons but i was thinking about that with the the coverage of uh, hurricane sandy and i remember when i was there uh there's a huge mormon church uh you know why i mean it's massive you have this big temple and the irony of uh, his running mate this year anyway uh did anybody be more prize or any of the folks if you're listening in anything anyone want to get in quickly before we go to uh the second audio segment oh gus can i be heard yes sir Okay, uh, you, you're mentioning parts that were omitted. There was one uh, big section in Chapter 3. Uh, it started with, it took me a while to recognize them in the crowd. Uh, there's a whole section where he talks about a Chinese family who's being held back at customs. And then he says, he starts waving at his, uh, his white grandparents, and the uh, official asks him, do you have a passport? He says, yes. They let them all through. And uh, he said, go ahead, he said, and told the Chinese family to step to one side. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, You were talking about certain advantages that he would have having uh, white grandparents and a white parent. And uh, one one thing is that he just gets through customs. He just has some white people wave at him, and he's through. But the Chinese family gets detained, which was interesting. They left that out of the uh, audio. Very grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that is huge. That is huge. Again, the importance of having that uh, (laughs) white mom, tit, gramps, uh, the fact that they are white. And again, that in my opinion, that's that's why they are referenced so much. Uh, That's why they keep being talked about (laughs) at the Democratic National Convention and during the debates. Uh, even when Michelle Obama, when I've heard her go out to uh, to speak, I think when she spoke at the Democratic National Convention, she was talking about Tut working at the bank. <laughs> her show, oh, my God, it was right there again. Can you imagine being a non-white person? Can you imagine being a black female and moving up the ranks and being an administrator at a bank with no college degree? Black male, black Can you imagine that? And I'm supposed to feel sorry for her because she's a victim of patriarchy and sexism. Hmm. The weeping white woman. Uh, 60 seconds. Anything? Great point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Omissions. Any omissions? Definitely share. Uh, anybody? Be more. Uh, anybody else? Mr. Reed. Anybody else? Um, I don't think anybody t- is touched on this, but going back to the interview, when he was talking about how white people have good intentions. Um, but race can still intrude in ugly ways. Um, that stuck out to me because all this talk about 
white people with good intentions. It's just, it seems to be a thing that reoccurs, um, so that stuck out. And then he said something about his mother being Afrocentric. It sounded like he said before it became vaginal, but I'm not sure. And uh, he talked about African extraction and things like that. Um, just those words in that interview, um, they really stuck out to me. Um, I think he even talked about his father having, uh, he said, cross-pollinization and hybridization as far as, like, cultures. He's like, it's not his, it's not his race, but it's just, as far as his culture. And those words stuck out to me as well. Mm. Paying attention to the words. He already pointed out the importance of fairness. That was one of his fundamental life values, fairness. <laughs> uh, this is the second audio segment. It's about the same length of time, maybe a few minutes shorter. Same procedure. Once we're done, uh, we'll hit the phone lines. Uh, context to white supremacy. President Barack Obama. Dreams from my father. Man, I'm not going to any more of these bullshit Puno parties. Yeah, that's what you said the last time. Ray and I sat down at a table and unwrapped our hamburgers. He was two years older than me, a senior who, as a result of his father's army transfer, had arrived from Los Angeles the previous year. Despite the difference in age, we'd fallen into an easy friendship, due in no small part to the fact that, together, we made up almost half of Puno's black high school population. I enjoyed his company. He had a warmth and brash humor that made up for his constant references to a former L.A. life the retinue of women who supposedly still called him long distance every night, his past football exploits, the celebrities he knew. Most of the things he told me I tended to discount, but not everything. It was true, for example, that he was one of the fastest sprinters in the islands. Olympic caliber, some said. This despite an improbably large stomach that quivered under his sweat-soaked jersey whenever he ran and left coaches and opposing teams shaking their heads in disbelief. Through Ray, I would find out about the black parties that were happening at the university or out on the army bases, counting on him to ease my passage through unfamiliar terrain. In return, I gave him a sounding board for his frustrations. I mean it this time, Ray was saying to me now. These girls are A1 USDA certified racists. All of them. White girls, Asian girls, shoot, these Asians worse than the whites. Think we got a disease or something. Maybe they're looking at that big butt of yours, I said. Man, I thought you were in training. Get your hands out of my fries, Ray responded. You ain't my bitch, nigga. Buy your own damn fries. Now, what was I talking about? Just because a girl don't go out with you, I said, doesn't make her a racist. Don't be thick, all right? I'm not just talking about one time. Look, I asked Monica out. She says no. I say okay. Your shit's not so hot anyway. Ray stopped to check my reaction, then smiled. All right, maybe I don't actually say all that. I just tell her, okay, Monica, you know, we still tight. Next thing I know, she's hooked up with Steve No-Neck Yamaguchi. Two of them all holding hands and shit like a couple of lovebirds. So fine, I figure there's more fish in the sea. I go ask Pamela out. She tells me she ain't going to the dance. I say, cool. Get to the dance. Guess who's standing there? Got her arms around Rick Cook. Hi, Ray, she says, like she don't know what's going down. Rick Cook, now you know that guy ain't shit. Sorry-ass motherfucker got nothing on me, right? Nothing. He stuffed a handful of fries into his mouth. Ain't just me, by the way. I don't see you doing any better in the booty department. Because I'm shy, I thought to myself. But I would never admit that to him. Ray pressed the advantage. So what happens when we go out to a party with some sisters, huh? 
What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! They on us like there's no tomorrow. High school chicks, university chicks, it don't matter. They acting sweet, all smiles. Sure you can have my number, baby. Bet. Well, I hesitated. Well, what? Ray continued. Listen, why don't you get more playing time on the basketball team, huh? At least two guys ahead of you ain't nothing, and you know it, and they know it. I seen you tear them up on the playground, no contest. Why wasn't I starting on the football squad this season, no matter how many passes the other guy dropped? Tell me we wouldn't be treated different if we was white. Or Japanese. Or Hawaiian. Or fucking Eskimo. That's not what I'm saying, I answered. So what are you saying? All right, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, yeah, it's harder to get dates because there aren't any black girls around here. But that don't make the girls that are here all racist. Maybe they just want somebody that looks like their daddy, or their brother, or whatever, and we ain't it. I'm saying, yeah, I might not get breaks on the team that some guys get, but they play like white boys do, and that's the style the coach likes to play, and they're winning the way they play. I don't play that way. As for your greasy mouth self, I added, reaching for the last of his fries, I'm saying the coaches may not like you because you're a smart-ass black man, but it might help if you stopped eating all them fries you eat, making you look six months pregnant. That's what I'm saying. Man, I don't know why you're making excuses for these folks. Ray got up and crumpled his trash into a tight ball. Let's get out of here. Your shit's getting way too complicated for me. Things had got complicated. It had been five years since my father's visit, and on the surface at least, it had been a placid time, marked by the usual rites and rituals that America expects from its children. Marginal report cards and calls to the principal's office, part-time jobs at the burger chain, acne and driving tests and turbulent desire. I'd made my share of friends at school, gone on the occasional awkward date, and if I sometimes puzzled over the mysterious realignments of status that took place among my classmates, as some rose and others fell depending on the whims of their bodies or the make of their cars, I took comfort in the knowledge that my own position had steadily improved. Rarely did I meet kids whose families had less than mine, and might remind me of good fortune. My mother did her best to remind me. She had separated from Lolo, and returned to Hawaii to pursue a master's degree in anthropology shortly after my own arrival. For three years I lived with her and Maya in a small apartment a block away from Punahou, my mother's student grant supporting the three of us. Sometimes, when I brought friends home after school, my mother would overhear them remark about the lack of food in the fridge or the less-than-perfect housekeeping, and she would pull me aside and let me know that she was a single mother going to school again and raising two kids, and that baking cookies wasn't exactly at the top of her priority list, and while she appreciated the fine education I was receiving at Punahou, she wasn't planning on putting up with any snotty attitudes from me or anyone else was that understood. It was understood. Despite my frequent and sometimes sullen claims of independence, the two of us remained close, and I did my best to help her out where I could, shopping for groceries, doing the laundry, looking after the knowing, dark-eyed child that my sister had become. But when my mother was ready to return to Indonesia to do her field work, and suggested that I go back with her and Maya to attend international school there, I immediately said no. I doubted what Indonesia now had to offer, and wearied of being new all over again. More than that, I'd arrived at an unspoken pact with my grandparents. I could live with them, and they'd leave me alone so long as I kept my trouble out of sight. The arrangement suited my purpose, a purpose that I could barely articulate to myself, much less to them. Away from my mother, away from my grandparents, I was engaged in a fitful interior struggle. I was trying to raise myself to be a black man in America, and beyond the given of my appearance, no one around me seemed to know exactly what that meant. 
My father's letters provided few clues. They would arrive sporadically, on a single blue page with gummed-down flaps that obscured any writing at the margins. He would report that everything was fine, commend me on my progress in school, and insist that my mother, Maya, and I were all welcome to take our rightful place beside him whenever we so desired. From time to time he would include advice, usually in the form of aphorisms that I didn't quite understand. Like water finding its level, you will arrive at a career that suits you. I would respond promptly, on a wide-ruled page, and his letters would find their way into the closet next to my mother's pictures of him. TV, movies, the radio, those were the places to start. Pop culture was color-coded, after all, an arcade of images from which you could cop a walk, a talk, a step, a style. I couldn't croon like Marvin Gaye, but I could learn to dance all the Soul Train steps. I couldn't pack a gun like Shaft or Superfly, but I could sure enough curse like Richard Pryor. And I could play basketball, with a consuming passion that would always exceed my limited talent. I was living out a caricature of black male adolescence, itself a caricature of swaggering American manhood. Yet at a time when boys aren't supposed to want to follow their father's tired footsteps, when the imperatives of harvest or work in a factory aren't supposed to dictate identity, so that how to live is bought off a rack or found in magazines, the principal difference between me and most of the man-boys around me, the surfers, the football players, the would-be rock-and-roll guitarists, resided in the limited number of options at my disposal. Each of us chose a costume, armor against uncertainty. At least on the basketball court I could find a community of sorts, with an inner life all its own. It was there that I would make my closest white friends, on turf where blackness couldn't be a disadvantage. And it was there that I would meet Ray and the other blacks close to my age who had begun to trickle into the islands, teenagers whose confusion and anger would help shape my own. That's just how white folks will do you, one of my African-American friends might say when we were alone. Everybody would chuckle and shake their heads, and my mind would run down a ledger of slights. The first boy in seventh grade who called me a coon, his tears of surprise, why'd you do that? when I gave him a bloody nose. The tennis pro who told me during a tournament that I shouldn't touch the schedule of matches pinned to the bulletin board because my color might rub off. His thin-lipped, red-faced smile, can't you take a joke, when I threatened to report him. The older woman in my grandparents' apartment building who became agitated when I got on the elevator behind her and ran out to tell the manager that I was following her. Her refusal to apologize when she was told that I lived in the building. Our assistant basketball coach, a young, wiry man from New York with a nice jumper, who after a pickup game with some talkative black men, had muttered within earshot of me and three of my teammates that we shouldn't have lost to a bunch of niggers, and who, when I told him, with a fury that surprised even me, to shut up, had calmly explained the apparently obvious fact that there are black people and there are niggers. These guys were niggers. That's just how white folks will do you. It wasn't merely the cruelty involved. I was learning that black people could be mean and then some. It was a particular brand of arrogance, an obtuseness in otherwise sane people that brought forth our bitter laughter. It was as if whites didn't know they were being cruel in the first place, or at least thought you deserving of their scorn. White folks. The term itself was uncomfortable in my mouth at first. I felt like a non-native speaker tripping over a difficult phrase. Sometimes I would find myself talking to Ray about white folks this or white folks that, and I would suddenly remember my mother's smile, and the words that I spoke would seem awkward and false. Or I would be helping Gramps dry the dishes after dinner, 
and Toot would come in to say she was going to sleep, and those same words, white folks, would flash in my head like a bright neon sign, and I would grow suddenly quiet, as if I had secrets to keep. Later, when I was alone, I would try to untangle these difficult thoughts. It was obvious that certain whites could be exempted from the general category of our distrust. Ray was always telling me how cool my grandparents were. The term white was simply a shorthand for him, I decided, a tag for what my mother would call a bigot. And although I recognized the risks in his terminology, how easy it was to fall into the same sloppy thinking that my basketball coach had displayed, there are white folks, and then there are ignorant motherfuckers like you, I'd finally told the coach before walking off the court that day. Ray assured me that we would never talk about whites, as whites, in front of whites, without knowing exactly what we were doing, without knowing that there might be a price to pay. But was that right? Was there still a price to pay? That was the complicated part, the thing that Ray and I could never seem to agree on. There were times when I would listen to him tell some blonde girl he'd just met about life on L.A.'s mean streets, or hear him explain the scars of racism to some eager young teacher, and I could swear that just beneath the sober expression Ray was winking at me, letting me in on the score. Our rage at the white world needed no object, he seemed to be telling me, no independent confirmation. It could be switched on and off at our pleasure. Sometimes, after one of his performances, I would question his judgment, if not his sincerity. We weren't living in the Jim Crow South, I would remind him. We weren't consigned to some heatless housing project in Harlem or the Bronx. We were in goddamn Hawaii. We said what we pleased, ate where we pleased, we sat in the front of the proverbial bus. None of our white friends, guys like Jeff or Scott from the basketball team, treated us any differently than they treated each other. They loved us and we loved them back. Seemed like half of them wanted to be black themselves, or at least Dr. J. Well, that's true, Ray would admit. Maybe we could afford to give the badass nigger pose a rest. Save it for when we really needed it. And Ray would shake his head. A pose, huh? Speak for your own self. And I would know that Ray had flashed his trump card, one that, to his credit, he rarely played. I was different, after all, potentially suspect. I had no idea who my own self was. Unwilling to risk exposure, I would quickly retreat to safer ground. Perhaps if we had been living in New York or L.A., I would have been quicker to pick up on the rules of the high-stake game we were playing. As it was, I learned to slip back and forth between my black and white worlds, understanding that each possessed its own language and customs and structures of meaning, convinced that with a bit of translation on my part, the two worlds would eventually cohere. Still, the feeling that something wasn't quite right stayed with me, a warning that sounded whenever a white girl mentioned in the middle of conversation how much she liked Stevie Wonder, or when a woman in the supermarket asked me if I played basketball, or when the school principal told me I was cool. I did like Stevie Wonder. I did love basketball, and I tried my best to be cool at all times. So why did such comments always set me on edge? There was a trick there somewhere, although what the trick was, who was doing the tricking and who was being tricked, eluded my conscious grasp. I gathered up books from the library, Baldwin, Ellison, Hughes, Wright, Du Bois. At night, I would close the door to my room, telling my grandparents I had homework to do, and there I would sit and wrestle with words, locked in suddenly desperate argument, trying to reconcile the world as I had found it with the terms of my birth. But there was no escape to be had. In every page of every book, in Bigger Thomas and Invisible Men, I kept finding the same anguish, the same doubt, a self-contempt that neither irony nor intellect seemed able to deflect. 
Even Du Bois' learning and Baldwin's love and Langston's humor eventually succumbed to its corrosive force. Each man finally forced to doubt art's redemptive power. Each man finally forced to withdraw, one to Africa, one to Europe, one deeper into the bowels of Harlem, but all of them in the same weary flight, all of them exhausted bitter men, the devil at their heels. Only Malcolm X's autobiography seemed to offer something different. His repeated acts of self-creation spoke to me. The blunt poetry of his words, his unadorned insistence on respect, promised a new and uncompromising order, martial in its discipline, forged through sheer force of will. All the other stuff, the talk of blue-eyed devils and apocalypse, was incidental to that program, I decided, religious baggage that Malcolm himself seemed to have safely abandoned towards the end of his life. And yet, even as I imagined myself following Malcolm's call, one line in the book stayed with me. He spoke of a wish he'd once had, the wish that the white blood that ran through him, there by an act of violence, might somehow be expunged. I knew that, for Malcolm, that wish would never be incidental. I knew as well that traveling down the road to self-respect, my own white blood would never recede into mere abstraction. I was left to wonder what else I would be severing if and when I left my mother and my grandparents at some uncharted border. One day, I awoke to the sound of an argument in the kitchen, my grandmother's voice barely audible, followed by my grandfather's deep growl. I opened my door to see Toot entering their bedroom to get dressed for work. I asked her what was wrong. Nothing. Your grandfather just doesn't want to drive me to work this morning, that's all. When I entered the kitchen, Gramps was muttering under his breath. He poured himself a cup of coffee as I told him that I would be willing to give Toot a ride to work if he was tired. It was a bold offer, for I didn't like to wake up early. Gramps scowled at my suggestion. That's not the point, Gramps said. She just wants to make me feel bad. I'm sure that's not it, Gramps, I said. Of course it is, he said. He sipped from his coffee. She's been catching the bus ever since she started at the bank. She said it was more convenient. And now, just because she gets pestered a little, she wants to change everything. Toot's diminutive figure hovered in the hall, peering at us from behind her bifocals. That's not true, Stanley. I took her into the other room and asked her what had happened. A man asked me for money yesterday, while I was waiting for the bus. That's all? Her lips pursed with irritation. He was very aggressive, Barry. Very aggressive. I gave him a dollar and he kept asking. If the bus hadn't come, I think he might have hit me over the head. I returned to the kitchen. Gramps was rinsing his cup. His back turned to me. Listen, I said. Why don't you just let me give her a ride, Gramps? She seems pretty upset. By a panhandler? Yeah, I know, but it's probably a little scary for her seeing some big man block her way. It's really no big deal. Gramps turned around, and I saw now that he was shaking. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to me. She's been bothered by men before. You know why she's so scared this time? I'll tell you why. Before you came in, she told me the fellow was black. He whispered the word. That's the real reason why she's bothered, and I just don't think that's right. The words were like a fist in my stomach, and I wobbled to regain my composure. In my steadiest voice, I told him that such an attitude bothered me too, but assured him that Toot's fears would pass and that we should give her a ride in the meantime. Gramps slumped into the chair in the living room and said he was sorry he had told me. Before my eyes, he grew small and old and very sad. I put my hand on his shoulder and told him that it was all right. I understood. We remained like that for several minutes, in painful silence. 
Finally, he insisted that he drive Toot after all and struggled up from his seat to get dressed. After they left, I sat on the edge of my bed and thought about my grandparents. They had sacrificed again and again for me. They had poured all their lingering hopes into my success. Never had they given me reason to doubt their love. I doubted if they ever would. And yet I knew that men who might easily have been my brothers could still inspire their rawest fears. I spent the last two years of high school in a daze, locking away the questions that life seemed insistent on posing. I kept playing basketball, attended classes sparingly, drank beer heavily, and tried drugs enthusiastically. I discovered that it didn't make any difference whether you smoked reefer in the white classmate's sparkling new van, or in the dorm room of some brother you'd met down at the gym, or on the beach with a couple of Hawaiian kids who had dropped out of school and now spent most of their time looking for an excuse to brawl. Nobody asked you whether your father was a fat cat executive who cheated on his wife, or some laid-off Joe who slapped you around whenever he bothered to come home. You might just be bored, or alone. Everybody was welcome into the club of disaffection. And if the high didn't solve whatever it was that was getting you down, it could at least help you laugh at the world's ongoing folly and see through all the hypocrisy and bullshit and cheap moralism. That's how it had seemed to me then, anyway. It had taken a couple of years before I saw how fates were beginning to play themselves out, the difference that color and money made, after all, and who survived, how soft or hard the landing when you finally fell. I tried to explain some of this to my mother once, the role of luck in the world, the spin of the wheel. It was at the start of my senior year in high school. She was back in Hawaii, her field work completed, and one day she marched into my room, wanting to know the details of my friend Pablo's recent arrest. I'd given her a reassuring smile and patted her hand and told her not to worry. I wouldn't do anything stupid. It was usually an effective tactic, another one of those tricks I had learned. People were satisfied so long as you were courteous and smiled and made no sudden moves. They were more than satisfied. They were relieved. Such a pleasant surprise to find a well-mannered young black man who didn't seem angry all the time. Except my mother hadn't looked satisfied. She had just sat there, studying my eyes, her face as grim as a hearse. Don't you think you're being a little casual about your future? She said. What do you mean? You know exactly what I mean. One of your friends was just arrested for drug possession. Your grades are slipping. You haven't even started on your college applications. Whenever I try to talk to you about it, you act like I'm just this great big bother. I didn't need to hear all this. It wasn't like I was flunking out. I started to tell her how I'd been thinking about maybe not going away for college, how I could stay in Hawaii and take some classes and work part-time. She cut me off before I could finish. I could get into any school in the country, she said, if I'd just put in a little effort. Remember what that's like? Effort? Damn it, Bear, you can't just sit around like some good-time Charlie waiting for luck to see you through. I looked at her sitting there, so earnest, so certain in her son's destiny. The idea that my survival depended on luck remained a heresy to her. She insisted on assigning responsibility somewhere, to herself, to Gramps and Toot, to me. I suddenly felt like puncturing that certainty of hers, letting her know that her experiment with me had failed. Instead of shouting, I laughed. <laughs> a good time Charlie, huh? Well, why not? Maybe that's what I want out of life. I mean, look at Gramps. He didn't even go to college. The comparison caught my mother by surprise. Her face went slack. Her eyes wavered. It suddenly dawned on me her greatest fear. Is that what you're worried about? I asked her. That I'll end up like Gramps? 
She shook her head quickly. You're already much better educated than your grandfather, she said. But the certainty had finally drained from her voice. Instead of pushing the point, I stood up and left the room. My mother's worst fears didn't come to pass. I graduated without mishap, was accepted into several respectable schools, and settled on Occidental College in Los Angeles, mainly because I'd met a girl from Brentwood while she was vacationing in Hawaii with her family. But I was still just going through the motions, as indifferent toward college as almost everything else. In sunny Los Angeles, as you strolled through Occidental's campus, a few miles from Pasadena, tree-lined and Spanish-tiled, the students were friendly, the teachers encouraging. In the fall of 1979, Carter, gas lines, and breast-beating were all on their way out. Reagan was on his way in, morning in America. When you left campus, you drove on the freeway to Venice Beach or over to Westwood, passing East L.A. or South Central without even knowing it, just more palm trees peeking out like dandelions over the high concrete walls. L.A. wasn't all that different from Hawaii, not the part you saw, just bigger and easier to find a barber who knew how to cut your hair. Anyway, most of the other black students at Oxy didn't seem all that worried about compromise. There were enough of us on campus to constitute a tribe, and when it came to hanging out, many of us chose to function like a tribe, staying close together, traveling in packs. Freshman year, when I was still living in the dorms, there'd be the same sort of bull sessions that I'd had with Ray and other blacks back in Hawaii. The same grumblings, the same list of complaints. Otherwise, our worries seemed indistinguishable from those of the white kids around us. Surviving classes finding a well-paying gig after graduation, trying to get laid, I'd stumbled upon one of the well-kept secrets about black people, that most of us weren't interested in revolt, that most of us were tired of thinking about race all the time, that if we preferred to keep to ourselves, it was mainly because it was the easiest way to stop thinking about it, easier than spending all your time mad or trying to guess whatever it was that white folks were thinking about you. So why couldn't I let it go? I don't know. I didn't have the luxury, I suppose, the certainty of the tribe. Grow up in Compton and survival becomes a revolutionary act. You get to college and your family is still back there rooting for you. They're happy to see you escape. There's no question of betrayal. But I hadn't grown up in Compton or Watts. I had nothing to escape from except my own inner doubt. I was more like the black students who'd grown up in the suburbs, kids whose parents had already paid the price of escape. You could spot them right away, by the way they talked, the people they sat with in the cafeteria. When pressed, they would sputter and explain that they refused to be categorized. They weren't defined by the color of their skin, they would tell you. They were individuals. To avoid being mistaken for such a sellout, I chose my friends carefully. The more politically active black students, the foreign students, the Chicanos, the Marxist professors and structural feminists and punk rock performance poets, we smoked cigarettes and wore leather jackets. At night in the dorms, we discussed neocolonialism, France Fanon, Eurocentrism, and patriarchy. When we ground out our cigarettes in the hallway carpet or set our stereos so loud that the walls began to shake, we were resisting bourgeois society's stifling constraints. We weren't indifferent or careless or insecure. We were alienated. Ironically, it was black friends like Regina, that made me rethink such conceits. Even the first time we met, the day she walked into the coffee shop and found a brother named Marcus giving me grief about my choice of reading material. Marcus had waved Regina over to our table, rising slightly to pull out a chair. Sister Regina, Marcus said, you know Barack, don't you? 
I'm trying to tell Brother Barack here about this racist tract he's reading. Marcus held up a copy of Heart of Darkness, Evidence for the Court. I reached over to snatch it out of his hands. Man, stop waving this thing around, I said. See there? Marcus said. Makes you embarrassed, don't it? Just being seen with a book like this. I'm telling you, man, this stuff will poison your mind. He looked at his watch. Damn, I'm late for class. He leaned over and pecked Regina on the cheek. Talk to this brother, will you? I think he can still be saved. Regina smiled and shook her head as we watched Marcus stride out the door. Marcus is in one of his preaching moods, I see. I tossed the book into my backpack. Actually, he's right, I said. It is a racist book. The way Conrad sees it, Africa's the cesspool of the world, black folks are savages, and any contact with them breeds infection. Regina blew on her coffee. So why are you reading it? Because it's assigned. I paused, not sure if I should go on. And because the book teaches me things, I said. About white people, I mean. See, the book's not really about Africa or black people. It's about the man who wrote it. The European, the American, a particular way of looking at the world. If you can keep your distance, it's all there in what's said and what's left unsaid. So I read the book to help me understand what it is that makes white people so afraid. They're demons. The way ideas get twisted around. It helps me understand how people learn to hate. And that's important to you, Regina said. My life depends on it, I thought to myself. But I didn't tell Regina that. I just smiled and said, that's the only way to cure an illness, right? Diagnose it. Regina smiled back and sipped her coffee. I'd seen her around before, usually sitting in the library with a book in hand, a big dark woman who wore stockings and dresses that looked homemade, along with tinted oversized glasses and a scarf always covering her head. I knew she was a junior, helped organize black student events, didn't go out much. She stirred her coffee idly and asked, What did Marcus call you just now? Some African name, wasn't it? Barack. I thought your name was Barry. Barack's my given name, my father's name. He was Kenyan. Does it mean something? It means blessed, in Arabic. My grandfather was a Muslim. Regina repeated the name to herself, testing out the sound. Barack. It's beautiful. She leaned forward across the table. So why does everybody call you Barry? Habit, I guess. My father used it when he arrived in the States. I don't know whether that was his idea or somebody else's. He probably used Barry because it was easier to pronounce. You know, helped him fit in. Then it got passed on to me, so I could fit in. Do you mind if I call you Barack? Regina asked. I smiled. Not as long as you say it right. She tilted her head impatiently, her mouth set in mock offense, her eyes ready to surrender to laughter. We ended up spending the afternoon together, talking and drinking coffee. Regina told me about her childhood in Chicago, the absent father and struggling mother, the Southside Six Flat that never seemed warm enough in winter, and got so hot in summer that people went out by the lake to sleep. She told me about the neighbors on her block, about walking past the taverns and pool halls on the way to church on Sunday. She told me about evenings in the kitchen with uncles and cousins and grandparents, the stew of voices bubbling up in laughter. Her voice evoked a vision of black life in all its possibility, a vision that filled me with longing, a longing for place and a fixed and definite history. As we were getting up to leave, I told Regina I envied her. For what? she asked. I don't know. 
for your memories, I suppose. Regina looked at me and started to laugh, a round, full sound from deep in her belly. What's so funny, I asked. Oh, Barack, she said, catching her breath. Isn't life something? And here I was all this time wishing I'd grown up in Hawaii. Strange how a single conversation can change you. Or maybe it only seems that way in retrospect. A year passes and you know you feel differently, but you're not sure what or why or how, so your mind casts back for something that might give that different shape. A word, a glance, a touch. I know that after what seemed like a long absence, I had felt my voice returning to me that afternoon with Regina. It remained shaky afterward, subject to distortion. But entering my sophomore year, I could feel it growing stronger, sturdier, that constant, honest portion of myself, a bridge between my future and my past. Sophomore year, I got involved in the divestment campaign. It had started as something of a lark, I suppose, part of the radical pose my friends and I sought to maintain, a subconscious end run around issues closer to home. But as the months passed, and I found myself drawn into a larger role, I noticed that people had begun to listen to my opinions. It was a discovery that made me hungry for words. Not words to hide behind, but words that could carry a message, support an idea. When we started planning the rally for the trustees' meeting, and somebody suggested that I open the thing, I quickly agreed. I figured I was ready, and could reach people where it counted. I thought my voice wouldn't fail me. The agenda had been carefully arranged beforehand. I was only supposed to make a few opening remarks, in the middle of which a couple of white students would come on stage dressed in their paramilitary uniforms to drag me away. A bit of street theater, a way to dramatize the situation for activists in South Africa. I knew the score, I had helped plan the script. Only when I sat down to prepare a few notes for what I might say, something had happened. In my mind it somehow became more than just a two-minute speech, more than a way to prove my political orthodoxy. I started to remember my father's visit to Miss Hefty's class, the power of my father's words to transform. If I could just find the right words, I had thought to myself. With the right words, everything could change. South Africa, the lives of ghetto kids just a few miles away, my own tenuous place in the world. I was still in that trance-like state when I mounted the stage. For I don't know how long I just stood there, the sun in my eyes, the crowd of a few hundred restless after lunch. A couple of students were throwing a frisbee on the lawn. Others were standing off to the side, ready to break off to the library at any moment. Without waiting for a cue, I stepped up to the microphone. There's a struggle going on, I said. My voice barely carried beyond the first few rows. A few people looked up, and I waited for the crowd to quiet. I say there's a struggle going on. The frisbee players stopped. It's happening an ocean away, but it's a struggle that touches each and every one of us, whether we know it or not whether we want it or not. A struggle that demands we choose sides. Not between black and white, not between rich and poor. No, it's a harder choice than that. It's a choice between dignity and servitude, between fairness and injustice, between commitment and indifference, a choice between right and wrong. I stopped. The crowd was quiet now, watching me. Somebody started to clap. Go on with it, Barack, somebody else shouted. Tell it like it is. Then the others started in, clapping, cheering, and I knew I had them, that the connection had been made. I took hold of the mic, ready to plunge on, when I felt someone's hands grabbing me from behind. It was just as we had planned it, 
Andy and Jonathan looking grim-faced behind their dark glasses. They started yanking me off the stage, and I was supposed to act like I was trying to break free, except a part of me wasn't acting. I really wanted to stay up there, to hear my voice bouncing off the crowd and returning back to me in applause. I had so much left to say. My friendships with Regina, and others like her, would lead me to re-examine the choices I made. Look at yourself before you pass judgment, they would tell me. Don't make someone else clean up your mess, they would say. It's not about you, I'd be reminded. They were simple points, homilies I had heard a thousand times before, in all their variations, from TV sitcoms and philosophy books, from my grandparents and from my mother. I had stopped listening at a certain point, I now realized, so wrapped up had I been in my own perceived injuries. So eager was I to escape the imagined traps that white authority had set for me. To that white world, I had been willing to see the values of my childhood, as if those values were somehow irreversibly soiled by the endless falsehoods that white spoke about black. Except now I was hearing the same thing from black people I respected, people with more excuses for bitterness than I might ever claim for myself. Who told you that being honest was a white thing? They asked me. Who sold you this bill of goods that your situation exempted you from being thoughtful or diligent or kind or that morality had a color? You've lost your way, brother. Your ideas about yourself, about who you are and who you might become, have grown stunted and narrow and small. I came to realize that while my identity might begin with the fact of my race, it didn't, couldn't end there. At least that's what I would choose to believe. Wow. What I would choose to believe. <laughs> Context of white supremacy. I will give out the number. Seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. I'm reminded of Bobby E. Wright, psychopathic racial personalities, and other essays. He says, the greatest pathology in the world is to believe in something we wish to be true. Before we proceed, I have been saying this book is abridged. Oh, my God. I have been so... I have thoroughly enjoyed the presentation up until the second segment started. I had been looking at the text and listening, and it was matching up, you know, going through. I just thought they got to be major omissions because there are a lot more pages than there are discs. Yeah, I mean, it just, there's no way. There's got to be huge omissions. The omissions began at least the ones that I picked up on the second segment, the omissions are massive. 
I got to read these. I almost stopped the audio because the omissions are massive. So I'm going to go back before we get the phone line to fill in the gaps. This is why I don't like abridged text. You don't know what they're taking out. They could be removing very important stuff. They have removed very important stuff from the audio book. Okay. Uh, the pages, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better about that. This is in chapter, chapter 4. Now, I have the PDF. For me, this is page 36. It would probably be further along in the book. Just uh, go to chapter 4 and then flip through until you can find it. Now, the context, this is after the dialogue with Ray. Remember, greasy-faced Ray, black male. So this continues. One day in early spring, Ray and I met up after class and began walking in the direction of the stone bench that circled a big banyan tree on Panahua's campus. It was called the Senior Bench, but it served mainly as a gathering place for the high school's popular crowd, the jocks and cheerleaders and party-going set with their jesters, attendants, and ladies-in-waiting, jostling for position up and down the circular steps. One of the seniors, a stout defensive tackle named Kurt, was there, and he shouted loudly as soon as he saw us, Hey, Ray, my main man, what's happening? Ray went up and slapped Kurt's outstretched palm. But when Kurt repeated the gesture to me, I waved him off. What's the problem? I overheard Kurt say to Ray as I walked away. A few minutes later, Ray caught up with me and asked me what's wrong. Man, those folks are just making fun of us, I said. What are you talking about? All that, yo, baby, give me five bullshit. So who's Mr. Sensitive all of a sudden? Kurt, don't mean nothing by it. Excuse me. Kurt, don't mean nothing by it. If that's what you think, then hey. Ray's face suddenly glistened with anger. Look, he said, I'm just getting along, all right? Just like I see you getting along, talking your game with the teachers when you need them to do you a favor. All that stuff about, yes, Miss Snooty bitch, I just find this novel so engaging. If I can just have one more day for that paper, I'll kiss your white ass. It's their world, all right? They own it, and we in it. So just get the fuck out of my face. By the following day, the heat of our argument had dissipated, and Ray suggested that I invite our friends Jeff and Scott to a party. Ray was throwing out at his house that weekend. I hesitated for a moment. We had never brought white friends along to a black party, but Ray insisted, and I couldn't find a good reason to object. Neither could Jeff or Scott. They both agreed to come so long as I was willing to drive. And so that Saturday night, after one of our games, the three of us piled into Grandpa's old Ford Granada and rattled our way out to the Schofield Barracks, maybe 30 miles out of town. When we arrived, the party was well on its way, and we steered ourselves toward the refreshments. The presence of Jeff and Scott seemed to make no waves. 
Ray introduced them around the room. They made some small talk. They took a couple of girls out on the dance floor, but I could see right away that the scene had taken my white friends by surprise. They kept smiling a lot. They huddled together in a corner. They nodded self-consciously to the beat of the music and said, excuse me, every few minutes. After maybe an hour, they asked me if I'd be willing to take them home. What's the matter? Ray shouted over the music when I went to let him know we were leaving. Things just starting to heat up. They're not into it, I guess. Our eyes met, and for a long stretch, we just stood there, the noise and laughter pulsing around us. There were no traces of satisfaction in Ray's eyes, no hints of disappointment, just a steady gaze, as unblinking as a snake's. That is a wicked metaphor. I've already put my value judgment on it, but I would highlighter would be coming out. Finally, he put out his hand, and I grabbed hold of it, our eyes still fixed on each other. Later then, later then, he said, his hand slipping free from mine, and I watched him walk away through the crowd, asking about the girl he'd been talking to just a few minutes before. Outside, the air had turned cool. The street was absolutely empty, quiet except for the fading tremor of Ray's stereo, the blue lights flickering in the windows of bungalows that ran up and down the tidy lane, the shadows of streets stretching across a baseball field. In the car, Jeff put an arm on my shoulder, looking at once contrite and relieved. You know, man, he said, that really taught me something. I mean, I can see how it must be tough for you and Ray sometimes at school parties being the only black guys and all. I snorted. Yeah, right. A part of me wanted to punch him right there. We started down the road toward town. And in the silence, my mind began to rework Ray's words that day with Kurt. All the discussions we had had before that, the events of that night, and by the time I had dropped my friends off, I had begun to see a new map of the world one that was frightening in its simplicity, suffocating in its implications. If we were always playing on the white man's court, Ray had told me by the white man's rules, if the principal or the coach or teacher or Kurt wanted to spit in your face, he could because he had power and you didn't. And if he decided not to, if he treated you like a man, or came to your defense, it was, it, it was because he knew that the words you spoke, the clothes you wore, the books you read, your ambitions and desires were already his. <laughs> I, I just want to read that sentence one more time. Staggered by the truth. <laughs> All right. If the principal or the coach or teacher or Kurt wanted to spit in your face, he could. Because he had power and you didn't. If he decided not to, if he treated you like a man or came to your defense, it was because he knew that the words you spoke, the clothes you wore, the books you read, your ambitions, 
and desires were already his. Whatever he decided to do, it was his decision to make, not yours. And because of that fundamental power he held over you, because it preceded and would outlast his individual motives and inclinations, any distinction between good and bad whites held negligible meaning. In fact, you couldn't even be sure that everything you had assumed to be an expression of your black, unfettered self, the humor, the song, the behind-the-back pass had been freely chosen by you. At best, these things were a refuge. At worst, a trap. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I don't know. I don't even We could end the show. We could just end the show. <laughs> Whoa. My Lord. The truth. The truth. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can finish this. There's a whole nother omission. There's a whole nother omission that I got to read. So let me finish this, and then we'll get to the, the other omission. Oh, my goodness. Following this maddening logic, the only thing you could choose as your own was withdrawal into a smaller and smaller coil of rage until being black meant only the knowledge of your own powerlessness, of your own defeat, and the final irony, should you refuse this defeat and lash out at your captors, they would have a name for that too, a name that could cage you just as good. Paranoid, militant, violent, nigger. Oh, I would pay money to have the President of the United States read what I just read to you all. I'm just going to read the other omission. I had other notes, but I can comfortably mute my line for the rest of the program. I will read the final omission, and then I'll open the phone lines. You all can take, we'll do 20 minutes just because I think this is, uh, I just keep thinking all the people, that, all the black people that I, that I hear critique President Obama, I wonder if they've read this. <laughs> like, uh, I feel like he could just have a private conversation. Like, I already told you all what the deal is. I'm telling you, like, I'm just trying to get by like you. Okay, this is, uh, this is the last omission that I will share. This is a little shorter, but I think just as important. The context of this omission is this is right after the dialogue where Toot has said, you know, she got asked for money by this black guy and all that. So this was omitted. It's, it's right after that. That night, I drove into Waikiki, past the bright-lit hotels, and down toward the Alawe Canal. It took me a while to recognize the house with its wobbly porch and low-pitched roof. Inside, the light was on, and I could see Frank sitting in his overstuffed chair, a book of poetry in his lap, his reading glasses slipping down his nose. I sat in the car, watching him for a time, then finally got out and tapped on the door. The old man barely looked up as he rose to undo the latch. It had been three years since I'd seen him. 
Want a drink, he asked me. I nodded and watched him pull down a bottle of whiskey and two plastic cups from the kitchen cupboard. He looked the same, his mustache a little whiter, dangling like dead ivy over his heavy upper lip. His cut-off leans with a few more holes and tied at the waist with a length of rope. How's your grandpa? He's all right. So what are you doing here? I wasn't sure. I told Frank some of what happened. He nodded and poured as each a shot. Excuse me. He nodded and poured us each a shot. Funny cat, your grandfather, he said. You know, we grew up maybe 50 miles apart. I shook my head. We sure did. Both of us lived near Wichita. We didn't know each other, of course. I was long gone by the time he was old enough to remember anything. I might have seen some of his people, though. Might have passed them on the street. If I did, I would have had to step off the sidewalk to give him room. Your grandpa ever tell you about things like that? I threw the whiskey down my throat, shaking my head again. Nah, Frank said. I don't suppose he would have. Stan doesn't like to talk about that part of Kansas much. Makes him uncomfortable. He told me once about a black girl they hired to look after your mother. A preacher's daughter, I think it was. Told me how she became a regular party of the, excuse me, told me how she became a regular part of the family. That's how he remembers it. You understand, this girl coming in to look after somebody else's children, her mother coming to do somebody else's laundry, a regular part of the family. I reached for the bottle, this time pouring my own. Frank wasn't watching me. His eyes were closed now, his head leaning against the back of his chair, his big wrinkled face like a carving of a stone. You can't blame Stan for what he is, Frank said quietly. He's basically a good man, but he doesn't know me any more than he knew that girl that looked after your mother. He can't know me, not the way I know him. Maybe some of these Hawaiians can, or the Indians on the reservation. They've seen their fathers humiliated, their mothers desecrated. But your grandfather will never know what that feels like. That's why he can come over here and drink my whiskey and fall asleep in that chair you're sitting in right now. Sleep like a baby. See, that's something I can never do in his house. Never. Doesn't matter how tired I get. I still have to watch myself. I have to be vigilant for my own survival. Frank opened his eyes. What I'm trying to tell you is your grandma's right to be scared. She's at least as right as Stanley is. She understands that black people have a reason to hate. That's just how it is. For your sake, I wish it were otherwise. But it's not. So you might as well get used to it. Frank closed his eyes again. His breathing slowed until he seemed to be asleep. I thought about waking him and decided against it and walked back to the car. The earth shook under my feet, ready to crack open at any moment. I stopped trying to steady myself and knew for the first time that I was utterly alone. That is still true to this day. I will, I'm real comfortable having nothing else to say. If you would like to participate, 
star six. I'll give out the number one more time. And uh, folks who are on the line, your line should be open. The number seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pounds. There were other omissions. I want to be clear about that. There were other omissions that I thought were significant, but I've talked enough. Uh, be more, Mr. Reed and Praz, your lines are all open. Um, I took so many uh, notes. It was as if I was write, uh, writing the ent um, entire story down, but um, I won't go into all that. But um, just to talk with Ray, how Ray seemed to be trying to educate um, President Obama on racism, and it was like President Obama was making excuses. It had to be everything but racism. And it just really, I mean, we know that children that are non-white with a white parent, they're just so much more confused because he was talking about even when he tried to picture, um, he, he thought of the word white folks or white people, he would picture his mom's smile and stuff like that. So it's just it just shows the level of confusion that, non-white children with the white parent have, um, have. And also when he was uh, talking about how he was trying to raise himself um, as a black man in America, he was um, he turned to TV to basically tell him what it meant to be black, and it was very stereotypical things. Um, I think that he mentioned Shaft and um, Richard Pryor um, and the fact that he played basketball and talked about how being black wasn't a disgrace on the um, basketball court and how he took his closest white friends there. Um, another part of confusion is how he he's uh, recollecting all this racism that he's experienced, um, and then he talks about how blacks were mean. So that, that really confused me as well. It's like, okay, you're talking about how whites are being racist to you, but then you're going to say how blacks are the ones being mean. Um, and talked about how white didn't know that they were doing it. Um, what what else? Oh, um, and I when I was talking about the um, the confusion that non white uh, non white children with a white parent have, I thought about how when I hear them say what they call themselves mixed, I automatically think about mixed up because confusion mixed up. That's what I automatically think about. Um, let's see. How he talked about slipping back and forth between white and black wor um, worlds. Um, he couldn't grasp who was doing the tricking and who was being tricked. Um, I also noted the reoccurring use of the word tribe. Even when he went to college in L.A., he talked about how the blacks were in tribes and they were in packs together and things like that. Um, I also noted the reoccurring, how he described, I can only remember um, so far, he described two black women, uh, which were Regina and Coretta, and it was like they had to be big or plump and dark. And so that was really, um, that really stuck out to me too, that the two, the only descriptions of black women had to be big and dark, and that's how we see them, and um, that's how they're pictured in the media anyway, so that really stuck out to me. Um, and then his talk about how he got the nickname Barry, um, I thought about uh, Gabrielle Douglas and actually my own name, um, going, going, um, growing up and things like that. 
white people can never get my name right. Um, I have nine letters in my first name. They can never get my name right. So growing up, I always had a nickname because they would always mispronounce my name. So I thought about um, Gabrielle Douglas and how white people will basically give you whatever name they want to call you. Um, and again, how the confusion with um, President Obama when he was talking about um, the struggle not being about black and white, more rich and poor, but fairness, <laughs> that word, and injustice. And when he said fairness and injustice, I can only think white and white, fair being white and unjust being white. And that's all. Uh, Gus, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I wanted to point out to his last speech when he uh, says there's a struggle going on. And uh, I was listening to his speech and, you know, the way he was describing that, you know, people weren't listening to him, they were playing Frisbee. And then I went back to Invisible Man, and I'm thinking of that scene when he's at the Royal Rumble, right? And they're asking him, uh, you know, what you say, boy, social responsibility. And so he's trying to yell over uh, all of this noise in the room. And then uh, I think one of the most important things at the end is, let's say, you know, and this is the invisible man now. Uh, Gentlemen, you see that I did not overpraise this boy. He makes a good speech, and someday he'll lead his people in the proper path. And I don't have to tell you that this is important in these days and times. This is a good, smart boy. And so to encourage him in the right direction, in the name of the Board of Education, I wish to present him with a prize in the form of this. He paused, removing the tissue paper and revealing a gleaming calfskin briefcase in the form of his first-class article from Shad Whitmore's shop. Boy, he said, addressing me, take this prize and keep it well. Consider it a badge of office. Prize it. Keep developing as you are, and someday it will be filled with important papers that will help shape the destiny of your people. This is uh, page 32, Invisible Man. And I was thinking about his, uh, there's a struggle going on speech, and I could see so many parallels. It's like he's the invisible man who is, is really confused, doesn't have any idea what's going on. And he has glimpses where he understands, like, this is a, this is a charade, like, and uh, I think Neely Fuller talks about how the white supremacists have fooled us into thinking that we get to our emotions through logic, right? Or, or logic uh, will get us to our emotions. Whereas in Barack's case, as you can see, in the party he went to, it's like his emotions are what bringing him to logic. But he dismisses it. He keeps, he keeps questioning himself because of the confusion in there. But he's... He's, he's a, a direct parallel to the invisible man, and I can see that right here from this speech. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Frank is almost like the veteran for those who've read Invisible Man. Uh, we've done quite a few programs on Invisible Man. Um, yeah, Frank is almost like the veteran trying to tell him what the deal is. Well, 
what it was that character. Petey Wistro was kept trying to tell him, tell the the main character, Invisible Man, like you know, what what the reality is, and he just keeps denying it throughout the whole book. The difference is in this book. I don't think. I mean, I haven't finished it. I don't think that he ever gets the point. He he gets to it every now and then, but then he's like, "Oh, that's just crazy talk." I was upset that day. It's like he seems to be second-guessing himself. He, he says something, and it's like right on point. It's like he's getting there. And then the next line, he'll just retract. Well, I mean, which is typical for, you know, a confused individual just like the character in the book, Invisible Man. Seven three four four, your line is open as well. Uh, good evening. May I be heard? Yes, sir. A greeting to all the callers. Um, this is very constructive. Um, huh, there's a lot of information. I just wanted to um, make one point, and um, I believe that was the part when um, his mother had challenged him about um, mm-hmm. doing something that he shouldn't have done. I don't remember exactly what it was. He was in his room, and he said he just looked at his mother, and he learned to smile, you know, when dealing um, with uh, uh, white people. You know, you just smile and grin and don't appear to be angry. And it seems like that dissipates whatever it was, even though he said his mother gave him a look, but it seemed like that, you know, caused that particular situation to subside. And it just appears that that particular practice is something that he's been using because I know when he's, you know, most of his public appearances, despite how aggravated he might get, he does learn to smile and grin. And I know Paul Mooney said, when dealing with white people, when you're grinning, you're winning. So I just wanted to add that that part of what I what I've noticed, or what I what I've heard. I'll mute my mic. He smiles, grin, and grins a lot today. If you look look, if you pay attention to his mannerism, um, the thing that stood out to me the most, and this is for those who say. We live in a post-racial society, but it also just also speaks to how far have we come along in the struggle. His friend Ray talking about how Asians treat black people in Hawaii. Um, I did some quick research to find out President Obama's age, what time period this would be. Uh, so it appears this would be sometime in the 70s. Um, I was there from 1987 to 1990, and nothing's changed. And I'm sure if I was to go back there today, I could ask my daughter, she's been there recently, uh, how Asian people are, are, are treating black folks um, over there. And, I mean, it's just truly sad. You know, I don't know how most people look at, look at Japanese, most non-white people look at Japanese, um, but... 
I would think that they're categorized as non-white as well. But why would they take on this racist characteristic? But then I think about how the Japanese during World War II, how they view other um, people known as Asians, and particularly the Chinese, an air of superiority. But, you know, it, it just... I just see no progress, no progress whatsoever from from the time we are brought here and up until today, I just don't see any progress whatsoever. And I'm not sure, well, I don't believe it. It is us who need to make the progress. It's, it's you know, them in, in terms of their sick thinking. So I don't know. I, I just uh, found it interesting that Ray was saying some of the same things that me and my buddies were saying about how Asians were looking at us. Like, I think his words were like, we got a disease or something. So I don't know what, what the problem is with them since they're classified as non-white people, I suspect. That's all. We have about another 10 minutes for folks to share. Uh, I'd say the same as the bleaching green, non-white people get infected, black people, so-called Asian people, individuals classified as black, individuals classified as so-called Asian, all of us, we get infected with those racist ideas. And, uh, I mean, it really, it can really warp the way you, even the way you see yourself, that moment when President Obama's looking at himself in the mirror after he's seen this article on the skin bleaching. A lot of Asian people skin bleach too. Um, just the omissions, another 10 minutes, but I mean, some of these omissions, they're just, they're huge. To be more's point about so-called mixed race, there was more uh, when talking about the so-called mixed race thing, uh, when he's talking to some of his students, uh, he says, they, they, they. That was the problem with people like Joyce. They talked about the richness of their multicultural heritage, and it sounded real good until you noticed that they avoided black people. It wasn't a matter of conscious choice necessarily, just a matter of gravitational pull, the way integration always worked, a one-way street, the minority assimilated into the dominant culture, not the other way around. Only white culture could be neutral and objective. Only white culture could be non-racial, willing to adopt the occasional exotic into its ranks. Only white culture had individuals, and we, the half-breeds and the college-degreed, take a survey of the situation and think to ourselves, why should we get lumped in with the losers if we don't have to? We become only so grateful to lose ourselves in the crowd, America's happy, faceless marketplace, and we're never so outraged as when a cabbie drives past us or the woman in the elevator clutches her purse, not so much because we're bothered by the fact that such indignities are what less fortunate coloreds have to put up with every single day of their lives, although that's what we tell ourselves, but that because we're wearing a Brooks Brothers suit and speak impeccable English and yet have somehow been mistaken for an ordinary nigger. I will mute my line. Wow. Wow.
I mean, I feel like they know, of course they know, what they're doing as far as uh, these uh, omissions and leaving these out of the audio books. Um, yeah, definitely. They, I, I think they did this on purpose. And, and back to the smiling and grinning thing. Every time I hear um, of, you know, um, basically non-white people being surrounded by white people and all they're doing is smiling and grinning, I automatically think of shucking and jiving as well and, like, minstrel shows and all that because if you look back to the quote-unquote art and um, advertisements and things like that, um, the non-white people, the black people are always smiling. They always showed them with a quote-unquote toothy grin. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I know um, in the area of where I live at, um, I'm not too far from Mr. Scotty Reed. And, um, you know, when you're around, um, you know, predominantly white area, it, it appears that most of um, uh, you know, uh, non-white people when they're around white to make them feel comfortable. You know, you have to be smiling, you have to be grinning, you have to seem non-threatening. When and and yet, you know, actuality, it should be them who should be smiling to make us, you know, feel at ease because they're the ones who actually are doing more harm than we could ever do. So yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Shucking and jiving parts, like you have to be, uh, as they say, you can't be the so-called angry black person, which I really don't know what an angry black person is, because we don't do anything to disrupt the system. All we do is to support it. Sarah Palin just said that President Obama was shucking and jiving at the debates. White people even uh, pointed this out. I think this was a, a tweet that she made after the third debate. Uh, she used the term shucking and jiving. So yeah, white people know the deal. I concur, definitely. All yeah, part that's of Neely Full always say the relationships with uh, white and non-white people is always tacky, trifling, and terroristic. <laughs> so we would expect that type of communication, right? They're always in a position of power in in terms of uh, dominating us and. Our response is, you know, he talked about an office party. You go to an office party and, you know, usually it's always joking, laughing and joking, nothing serious. Because if you get serious, you know, then it's it might be some violence that happens or counter-violence. I'm just dropping omissions in some of the space. Uh, this is uh, the beginning of the conversation with Marcus, black male in college. I thought back to the time when I was still living in the dorms, the three of us in Reggie's room, Reggie, Marcus, and myself, the patter of rain against the window pane. We were drinking a few beers, and Marcus was telling us about his run-in with the LAPD. They had no reason to stop me, he was saying. No reason. 
except I was walking in a white neighborhood, made me spread eagle against the car. One of them pulled out his piece. I didn't let him scare me, though. That's what gets these stormtroopers off, seeing fear in a black man. Muting my line. Man, he could have just read that, Trayvon Martin. I'll just read from my autobiography. I guess it left all I wonder. I wonder what kind of uh, Barack we would have had if he had read Neely Fuller back in the eighties. It seemed like he was on the cusp of being, uh, you know, getting it, getting understanding it, and he talked about reading uh, Malcolm X, but you know, he was almost there. I don't think he would be president. Yeah. Uh, he really been, I, and I feel like he is um, less confused. But had he been even more less confused, I don't think that he'd be in the position he's in today. Okay. I have uh, this is a quick omission. When he was having the conversation with his white mother, she was fussing at him about not being serious about his grades and studying and all. Uh, he goes, he's having a, he's thinking to himself, he's thinking this. He says, uh, I suddenly felt like punching it. Excuse me, I suddenly felt, oh, this wasn't omitted. I think this was included. I think this was there. I suddenly felt like puncturing that certainty of hers, letting her know that her experiment with me had failed. I thought that was just him using the term experiment. That, to me, would almost fit the mold of you all saying he was on the cusp of grasping, understanding the implications of it being a white world, even with regards to his mom, referencing what she had done with him as being an experiment. Real important use of words right there, I thought. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like they, like when he starts to figure out that this is just, you know, what I've been told is a lie, it's kind of like then they go into the refinement stage where they tell him something else to, to make him confused even more. They up their ante. Um, I want to say, I think it was, well, the female caller brought up, I think that was B. Moore brought up, about if he had read Neely Fuller and, you know, who's to say he hasn't. But um, 
I only recently became exposed to Neely Fuller, but read Malcolm X and uh, followed him. I think I started reading Malcolm X biography in the 1980s, and that put me on a path to less confusion. So I don't, you know, I don't know what his extent of studying Malcolm X and his teaching, but that would lend me to believe that if a person put any kind of study into Malcolm X, that they would, you know, be put on a path to less confusion. Fusion. I, I don't know. Last sixty seconds. Uh, anything y'all want to get out? Last sixty seconds. There was there are several Dr. Welsing moments that got omitted. One of them. Uh, this is after or in the context of the dialogue with Ray. And, and President Obama is defending white people and saying he doesn't think they're so bad. And he says it seems like uh, they loved black people and, you know, it really wasn't that bad. And he says, shit, it seems like half of them wanted to be black themselves or at least Dr. J. Dr. Welsing line, I thought, and Mr. Fuller where he says black people, excuse me, white people don't mistreat black people because they're black. They do it because white people are mad that they are not black. Very similar to the uh, statement in the code book from Mr. Fuller. Last 60 seconds, anything? Last thoughts? Yeah, last thoughts. Um, I recently heard the speech that he gave after Hurricane Katrina. I don't know if he was speaking to a black church or I know he was speaking to a group of black people and he was talking about racism. He was saying it, the response was racist. So he's a very complicated human being, being in the position that he is. I guess, you know, you have to. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's like he tells people what they want to hear, depending upon who he's speaking in front of. When I hear speeches, that speech in particular, I'm like, wow, I never heard him talk like that. You know, um, you know, speaking to these people, talking about the racism during Hurricane Katrina. And then I also wonder, how could you sit under Reverend Jeremiah Wright? All, for 20 years he went to that church and not also take in some of what was being taught, the so-called liberation theology. That's my thoughts. Oh, I was going to say that too, Scotty, about the um, <laughs> about Jeremiah Wright when you were talking about him and his path of uh, less confusion. Jeremiah Wright came to mind too. More to come, Jerem Jeremiah Wright hasn't even come up in the text yet. Uh, I saved that part of the uh, the interview with Connie, Connie Martinson because, uh, yeah, we haven't got to it yet. So, yeah, that's stay tuned. Uh, I, since we talked about that at the beginning, the interview with the white woman, the word hustle, I didn't hear anything that Tit said that she was hustled. She said he asked her for some money. Uh, the word hustle that has stronger implications than just someone asking for money, even if they are quote-unquote aggressive about it or very aggressive about it. That's not exactly a hustle. Very interesting word choice. We'll be back tomorrow, compensatory program, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, right here, Black Talk Radio Network. Also on iTunes, uh, you can just search white supremacy and it'll pop up. The current feed has the Black Cows logo. On iTunes, you can subscribe. 
get all the archives. I've been adding this week too, more of the archives to come, chronological order. We are on Stitcher.com as well. You can download the app for free, Stitcher.com. Uh, you can get it on your smartphone, mobile devices, right there. The archives are available, updated. This program will be available on Stitcher.com uh, just a few hours most likely. Um, I will add one omission before we roll. Again, pieces of a puzzle. Maybe if he had read that, that would have changed things too. Pieces of a puzzle, Renitia Tate. She was on the program this past Sunday. Book review is finished on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. I included excerpts, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Brand new book review, Renitia Tate, Pieces of a Puzzle. Uh, my PayPal is on my blog as well. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Top right corner, listener supported. Appreciate all the folks who invest and have allowed us to continue broadcasting. Uh, you can support Justice's counter-racist effort as well. Her blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. We will be back tomorrow. Final omission from the audiobook. Uh, and I said they're massive. This is actually detracting from my enjoyment of the book because I feel like I got to keep my eye open because they might slip something past me. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you all don't think some of the excerpts that I've shared that are not in the audiobook, maybe you don't think they're that important. Some of these I think are quite revealing. Uh, I will, this is the last one I'll share. I'm sure I haven't caught them all. If anyone out there, if you're reading, if you catch things that are not in the audio book that you think we should think about, even if it's just one sentence, let us know. You can email it to me, put it on the Facebook page. Facebook, uh, Twitter is an at until justice. Twitter, at until justice. Uh, the Facebook, you can join, get all the updates. It is facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. The final omission the context of this dialogue, uh, college campus, and they're talking about uh, what it really means to get that degree. I guess they were having this conversation with some of the students, and he has this dialogue with Frank, the black male, Frank Marshall Davis. Okay. Well, he said, that's the problem, isn't it? You don't know. You're just like the rest of these young cats out here. All you know is that college is the next thing you're supposed to do. And the people who are old enough to know better, who fought all those years for your right to go to college, they're just so happy to see you in there that they won't tell you the truth, the real price of admission. And what's that? Leaving your race at the door, he said. Leaving your people behind. He studied me over the top of his reading glasses. Understand something, boy. You're not going to college to get educated. You're going there to get trained. They'll train you to want what you don't need. They'll train you to manipulate words so they don't mean anything anymore. They'll train you to forget what it is that you already know. They'll train you so good you'll start believing what they tell you about equal opportunity and the American way and all that shit. 
They'll give you a corner office and invite you to fancy dinners and tell you you're a credit to your race until you want to actually start running things. And then they'll yank on your chain and let you and let you know that you may be a well-trained, well-paid nigger, but you're a nigger just the same. So what is it that you're telling me? That I shouldn't be going to college? Frank's shoulders slumped, and he fell back in his chair with a sigh. No, I didn't say that. You've got to go. I'm just telling you to keep your eyes open. Stay awake. We will be back next week. Bill Clinton, just this week, came out and talked about how cool he thought President Obama was. Hmm. That's in the autobiography, too. Hope it was constructive. Good to hear from everybody. Take notes. Oh, we had somebody. You all are waiting until the uh, last minute to dial in. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. All right, two people dialed in at the last minute. I will just, because it's been an ugly week, now, I'm trying to be patient with victims. I will give you all five minutes, but you all waited till like the last, last minute. Uh, the person with a block number and 2564, your lines are open. I will give you all five minutes if you have something to share. Yeah, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to say in my defense, I, uh, I, uh, I uh, raised my hand about uh, 10, 15 minutes ago. I, I guess you might have missed it, Gus. Um, that's still after the three-hour mark. That's, <laughs> that's still way late, way late. You're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, the only point I wanted to make was uh, when he was having that conversation with his mother, and his mother, uh, he, when, and he made the comment that, well, Gramps didn't go to college, you know, and and then um, I was thinking what uh, the fear. I was thinking that what what his mom was really thinking was, well, he didn't go to college, but he's a white guy, and you and you are a non-white person, so for you it would be much worse. She didn't say it, but I, I'm guessing that's what her fears were. Like, you know, you'd be much worse off than Gramps if uh, if he didn't go. Um, other than that, um, that's pretty much all I had to say. Um, thank you, Gus. Hello, Gus. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. This is Shadow. Sorry about also calling in late. I ain't got any excuse. I just uh, was going in and out, but the uh, what people said about him maybe reading Mr. Fuller's work. Uh, I've lived in Chicago, and I've been to Jeremiah Wright's church, and... Looking at what I've seen, I think it's highly likely that he's read uh, Dr. Fuller's work, or, or do, I mean, Mr. Fuller's work, or Dr. Wesling's work, just from what I know about that church and what I know about uh, Reverend Wright. Oh, and I just want to add one more thing. Um, I think uh, Barack Obama is is uh, is. I think he's less confused than what you are giving him credit for. I think he's just playing the game. He wanted to be president, and he and um, you know he's just playing the game. You know, just to play the game because he knows he if certain things he can he can do and certain things he can't do. And yeah, and I agree with the uh, the last statement that the last caller made. 
I think that he he uh he definitely came across Mr. Fuller's work and Wellsings and and uh and everybody else. So um yeah, I think he's uh less co- very very less confused, he's just playing the game. That's just my personal opinion. When you, I'll just say this, and then I'll I'll stop. I don't want to run over. But when you enter his church and you join, he brings you the first room. He brings you into is a huge library. The library is full of books on African history, racism, white supremacy, marriage counseling, credit counseling, all that kind of stuff. He believes in his members being educated in a different way. <laughs> Right on. Thank you all for sharing. Let's get our hands up earlier next time. Yes, Appreciate the input, though. Um, yeah, I think I've been saying, even before we started the book, I think I was saying, I think President Obama is a lot less confused than most of the non-white people I bump into. Uh, I don't think he could be in that position and not know what the deal is. White people are running the world. I think he knows that very well. We'll be back tomorrow. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.